Everybody wants their lives to turn out happy. We want security. We want fulfillment. We want to stop being so alone. Most of all, of course, we want love. Everybody needs love. But when you were abused or emotionally neglected as a kid, you might find that one relationship after another after another just keeps coming up empty. It's no good. It's not real. They're not into you. It's not what you thought. You get hurt. You even get humiliated, you get flat out rejected. And it happens enough times that it's almost impossible to face. And at that point, you kind of know that something is driving partners away from you. But the need for love is so great that you just push ahead and hope once again, this time it'll be different. And it's that urgent need for love that becomes the actual obstacle for healing. But what is healing? What are people even talking about? You do the same things they do and they, they heal and, and you just keep making the same mistakes. Here's the thing about serious childhood drama. If you were consistently treated as worthless, as an object, you weren't seen or heard, nobody got you, the solutions devised by people who see your symptoms but who don't have what you have, their solutions are just not that likely to help. What's needed is a journey into what I call the deep room the deep room inside where you can see the real issue at last and open up to changing for real. And I'll say more about that after I read the letter I received this week from a woman that I'll call Vivian. It's a long letter. I'm including virtually all of it because the first half, it's more than I usually include about somebody's past. But in this case, what happened to her when she was a kid is telling and it's mysterious, especially in light of her strengths right now and the way she's currently struggling in a relationship. So here's a letter from Vivian. Dear Anna, until right now, I had myself convinced that I was doing a lot better with limerence and my related issues, which I have found tremendous help with by watching your videos. Great. I broke up with a boyfriend recently who was not right for me. I was waiting for the inevitable abandonment melange. Imagine my shock and joy when it didn't come. Abandonment melange for people who are new on this channel. It's a, it's a very intense set of emotions that happened to, to some of us who, were, who went through actual abandonment when we were kids. The grief, rage, panic. Feels like you got kicked out of the whole world and the human race. And it's so terrible that sometimes we'll go to any lengths to avoid it, like stick around with somebody that's not right for us. So... So Vivian's saying here, she thought she was going to get abandonment melange as she has in the past, but she didn't. And she credits learning about CPTSD and abandonment melange and attachment disorders, dissociation and limerence from the crappy childhood fairy channel. And that's given her a context, she says, for what I've always experienced with breakups. So when I decided he was a very bad choice for me, um, a first for me to decide that. And when I ended it, I was bracing for the inevitable feelings of total collapse and waiting for my entire personhood to shatter. Only this time it didn't happen. Okay. I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to circle things that I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's just go through Vivian's letter here. See what's going on. Okay. <clears throat> so it didn't happen. Can you imagine that? I felt free and happy and self-possessed. I felt strong. Yeah, that's what it feels like when you leave a bad relationship and you don't have <laughs> abandonment wounds. So what brings me now to the place where I sadly feel I should write to ask for help is because I'm experiencing limerence for someone and I don't know why I can't shake it. I feel stupid. Okay, I understand. 
I'm 49 and a successful artist. I say that because work is the only thing I've ever been good at. I come from a broken home, broken by my extremely malignant narcissistic mom, who spent my childhood putting herself first and making sure I knew she despised me. My mom is a tiny lady with black eyes and black hair. She hates how she looks and told me she married my father so she could have a tall child with a perfect nose and blue eyes. I'm tall with a good nose and blue eyes. However, this made her seethe with jealousy over the attention and compliments I got. Also, because I am a separate person, any attempt to be a real person with my own wishes, opinions, desires, dreams, or preferences was met with anger, insults, brutal punishment, and worst of all, emotional starvation. I was conceived against my father's wishes by my mom who tried to make him be more responsible. When this didn't work, she kicked him out, divorced him, and then remarried another tall, blue-eyed man with a perfect nose. <laughs> Sorry, it's not really funny, but it's just, you know, the perfect nose thing. This is the first time we've had a perfect nose be a part of a story. Okay. Only unlike my father, this next man was psychologically unhinged, brutal, and violent. In a way you could never see coming, he began hitting me when I was four. I told my mom he hit me before they got married while they were still dating, and she told me flatly, no, they didn't. So <clears throat> it's going to get a little bit rougher here if you want to plug your ears. So eventually he began hitting me in front of her, giving me nosebleeds at age five, and she just stood there emotionless. After he began cheating on her openly in our community, she began picking fights with me, so he would rush in and hit me to put me in my place, saying this was discipline. Quote, a few times she walked away with him, thanking him for defending her. I suspect this was for her to prove to herself that he still cared about her. Two quick memories for some greater context. My mom's husband was an emergency room doctor. My best friend, who I walked to and from school with every day, lived across the street. One day, her parents were involved in a car accident and were taken to the ER, the emergency room. Her parents told this stepfather that I was a wonderful and polite child who was having a very positive effect on their daughter. And the stepdad looked at them dead in the eyes and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they explained again that they were Lisa's parents who lived across the street and that I was a wonderful child and they were thankful I was having a positive effect on Lisa. Again, he told them he had no idea what they were talking about. He didn't have any stepchildren and had no idea who they were even though they had met him before. Imagine what it was like to have them pull me aside privately to tell me this happened. I was eight years old. I had no framework to even process it. What was worse, when I got home after that conversation, my mom told me I was punished yet again because of it. I asked my mom to explain why I was grounded for two weeks, unable to leave the house, use the phone or TV or see any friends, because someone told her husband that I was a wonderful child. She just stared at me and never answered. Uh-huh. Okay. I have some thoughts about that. The second memory explains why I am no contact with her now. After years of therapy and working with her to get her to finally admit I had been abused as a child, which she was able to do after denying it for over a decade, we were walking down the street one day during a Christmas visit talking about old times, including her husband, and I tried to emotionally connect with her about it and be vulnerable. Uh-oh. Where's this gonna go? I said, I always wanted a brother or sister, so at least I wouldn't have to be abused alone. I guess I hit a nerve because she replied with, your stepfather took one look at you and refused to have children with me. 
I was visibly shaken and said, what did you just say to me? And she contorted her face into a mocking expression and said, oh, get over it. It was just a joke. I walked back to her home, packed my bags and flew home and have never seen her again. My present situation is that I do now have the ability to see bad relationships and break up with someone, something I wasn't able to do before. Again, I credit your videos with all of the information I now have that helps me see things for what they are, including my own problems and issues to work on. However, there's a young man that I can't stop thinking about. I know this is limerence, but why doesn't knowing that make it stop? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Why doesn't my healing and strength prevent me from falling into this trap? He's 31. We'll call him B. And I'm 49, but I look 38, according to everyone I meet. And I agree with them because I know it's true. So one day I saw him on Facebook. He's an architect who gels with what I do. And she's an artist. He, he's very professional and looks older than his age. I thought he was about 36 to 40. He's got a light when he smiles. And even in photos, he commands a room. I heard a voice in my mind say, wow, I could really fall in love with this guy. Total limerence, just based on Facebook photos and posts. But let me tell you, when he messaged me on Facebook and showed some interest in me, I was all over it. I made plans to be in his town and we met up. We drank, talked, flirted, and he asked me back to his house and I happily said yes. We had a spectacular kissing session in the bar and went back and then went back to his place. I held the line and didn't go all the way with him, but we fooled around and it was great. We don't live in the same town. Also, he let me know his wife had left him, confirmed, was divorcing him, and he was in a self-destructive phase of dating tons of women and drowning in his sorrows. I thanked him for his honesty and he thanked me for being so thoughtful about everything as I accepted his situation. Then the next day, he called me with a plan for us to become colleagues and work on a big project together, which I accepted. That was about a year ago. In the meantime, from that phone call until now, I had the recent boyfriend who I even brought along with me when I saw B again for the first time after our one night out. By the time the big project with B rolled around, I had broken up with my boyfriend, so I showed up to his hometown where the project was taking place, single. Even though nothing happened with B, we were texting a lot, built up more of a rapport, built some private jokes, found out we have tons in common, and became friends. His grandma even gave me preserves and food she prepared in a little gift bag she gave to him to give to me. And to her amazement, I made her some food right back and B and I went to her home so I could give it to her. She loved me and told me over and over how wonderful I am. So beautiful and thoughtful. Sigh. After the project was over, we continued to stay in touch and he said he wanted to do more projects and we should team up to really do as many projects as possible. I made him my advisor for one grant. He wrote letters of recommendations for me, and he uses my CV for my resume for his projects as his colleague. So here I am working with this man I thought I could resist, but all the initial feelings are still there, only stronger since we have the creative connection, the jokes, the projects to work on, and I'm in the pocket with his Nana, the person in his family who he's closest with. Please help me stop obsessing over him. You know I'm going to do it, too, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> I, live, I live for our interactions. 
I love our project ideas. I fantasize about him falling in love with me, wanting to be with me, and me the same with him, of us being a cool power couple with a great life, doing cool projects, and just loving life. Reality. He's too young for me. I'm too old for him. And he's in a different place in life and not in a good place emotionally himself. There's never going to be anything with him. So why am I experiencing limerence for him? Can you help? Why can't I just make it stop? Thank you for any insight you can give me. And thank you for all the work you do. All right. From Vivian. Thank you. All right. I got you here. Um, what a bummer, Vivian. You know, I know like having that creative spark with somebody is one of life's most precious connections there is. And I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Like it's so tempting to want to make that into your romantic relationship. And you're a woman. This is a man. And if a man is being offered free sex, then even if he's not interested in you at all, a lot of times for many men, they will just arrange for that. I just am so glad he told you the real deal with him that he's on a self-destructive bender sleeping with lots and lots of women. That must feel terrible for you, being in love with him as you are. So, but good. All the, all the more this like gets you in the face, ah, this sucks. That's better. That's better for you. All right. You said you recently broke up with a guy who was not right for you and you don't talk about him, but you had to break up with him. Like at least he was into you and I can't help but wonder, I don't know, maybe he wasn't right for you. You're not that, you're, you're still, I, I, the stuff you told me about your childhood is so egregious, but I can see ways that it's still totally infecting who you are, how you interpret things and what you do. It's still there. So I don't know what kind of good relationship you would happen to stumble into in this case, but you didn't feel like this was right for you. Um, and you, but I'll tell you why I question the whole thing. You broke up with this guy when you got limerent about somebody impossible for you. Somebody who was on a self-destructive bender, drinking, sleeping with lots of women, way too young for you. Then you broke up with this guy that you were already with, who I guess was still willing to be with you. So I'm just, I'm questioning that. Okay. So you thought you would get abandonment melange and it didn't happen. Well, yeah. Uh, one way that you can avoid abandonment melange is by basically self-medicating on an, on an addictive uh, delusion about another person, which is what you had gone into. That's what limerence is for. The reason you haven't been able to kick limerence yet is because your life is not fun. It's not happy. There's not meaning in there. You're not meeting your own emotional needs. You're not, uh, you're not having the full spectrum of what you need in your life to be happy. And because of the way you were raised, probably, mm, you know, you just never learned how to do that. You got, you got much better at trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, you know, than actually building up a life that you love. You got better at like pretending this half-life you've got is like, oh, it's so great. It's going to be great. And having this total relationship where all your energy goes into a fantasy. What's tragic about that is, um, you know, you put your energy in a fantasy and you basically threw it in the incinerator. Your precious energy for building a life, for creating great things in the world, for loving people, for solving the world's problems, whatever it is that you're made to do, you just threw that away. You just it's like you took a big thing of milk and poured it on the floor. You told me about your mom and you said that she was an extremely malignant narcissist mom. And I can tell you've been in therapy because you have a lot of insight about that. And like, I, I'm not a diagnostician, but the stuff you told me is appalling, terrible. Wow. Uh, just terrible. And all her stuff about having children who look a certain way. My mom did that. <laughs> I won't go into it right now, but she, you know, she had an agenda for how her kids should look. 
It, luckily, it didn't last that long, but it was after I was born and she felt like I just didn't come out blonde enough. I came out a bit dark. And, you know, my mom's Norwegian and uh, my coloring was basically like you see now. It's I color my hair now, but this is about, I think my hair was a little lighter than this as a kid and that was not enough. And also my eyes aren't blue. She wanted blue eyes. Weird, huh? I tell you what though, I didn't find out about that until I had a lot of healing under my belt. So I, all I do is just go, well, that's so weird. I don't take it personally. Um, I like the color of my hair and eyes is just not something I've ever felt insecure about. So mm. a lot of things I have felt insecure about, but not that. So when you don't have personally carry a fear about something or the shape of your nose. When I was a kid, actually, I read, I think, is it in Little Women? One of the sisters sleeps with a clothespin. And I did that. I, it hadn't occurred to me that people should want a thin nose, but when I read it in Little Women, I was like, should you? Okay, I'll sleep with a clothespin, but it hurts. It hurts. And so that lasted for about, you know, 45 minutes. <laughs> Cut over it. And uh, I think once when I was a comedian, uh, an agent said that I should get a nose job and get my teeth fixed. And I couldn't afford it. And then I forgot all about it. So there you go. <laughs> Don't worry about that. So when I read about your mom, like shaming you again and again, and, you know, like basically trying to breed a child with somebody and, and then they didn't like how you turned out. And then she tried to, she got, she got pregnant against his will in order to get him more responsible. Like, did she say that? That's like, wow. I mean, at least sometimes if she admitted it and explained herself this way, at least you have the information instead of having to speculate. Maybe she just did that because, you know, she just wanted to get him to stay with her. But everything that you're describing does sound like somebody who has no conscience at all about affecting other people and is just trying to what's the word, you know, create an image for themselves and then, you know, like destroy people as needed to keep the image going. So then she got this new guy with the nice nose. <laughs> Sorry, I can't stop laughing about the nice nose. What even is a nice nose? I don't know. But, uh, and he was violent and unhinged and brutal. And your mom pretended she didn't see it and said, oh, thank you for defending me. And for whatever reason, I understand, I can see that. I can see that of getting, you know, like having to be defended from a nine-year-old girl by somebody hitting her. That's just really just violates everything in me. I just hate it. I hate that that happened to you. And uh, I blame you for nothing that you've struggled with after something like that. So then the ER doctor thing. Okay, this is interesting. For what it's worth, like this, this has, I take it her, that abusive husband is dead or not in the picture anymore, but... Why would he do that in the hospital and say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what my guess is, is somebody else was present and he had a secret life where he was lying that he had a wife. That's, that's like one thing that would completely explain it. You know, that some other person was present in the room when they had that conversation. He's like, Oh, I don't have a wife. I don't have a kid. Just thinking, I don't know. We'll let the uh, commenters have a field day with that one. And, um, you, I, I also get it that, you know, he couldn't tolerate people praising you. That sounds like it really was the case, but for him to deny even knowing what they were talking about and say he didn't have stepkids, I feel like he was hiding something from someone else in the room. He was having an affair. If it's any satisfaction to you. Okay. So then you got home. And so let's just do my scenario that there was somebody else in the room he was having an affair with who was under the false impression that he was a single guy and he had to pretend he had no idea what these people were talking about. It was blowing his cover. 
what would he have had to tell your mom, right? What would he have had to tell her to get away with it? Because the neighbors would probably go to her and go, well, it was the weirdest thing. We saw Bob at the emergency room and he, he said he had no idea what we were talking about. And <laughs> he would have had to make something up, right? Yeah, you were punished for something he made up about you. And it sounds like that happened a lot, but that's what I'm guessing. He was just treating both of you just look terribly, right? So you got grounded. And also because your mom is trying to, she's, she's having to work really hard to be in denial about what's really going on, about how this man is abusing you and probably her to get in denial. And because she's just so bonkers here, of course she has to blame you. You're grounded. You know, this whole thing is going on of abuse and lies and you're grounded. That just, that makes, for everything you've told me about her, she always has to have some sort of like outlet to take all that anger out on, right? Because if she gets mad at him, I hate to think what he would do to her. I don't mean to just dismiss that. It's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Okay. So then this other thing happened. This is why you have no contact with her. You had years of therapy. You worked with her to finally admit you had been abused. And you're like, wow, she admitted it. Your mind thinks now everything's going to be okay. You took a walk and you start trying to emotionally connect with her and be vulnerable. But if she's as narcissistic as you describe, of course, that's a terrible mistake, right? You should never try to emotionally connect or be vulnerable with somebody who treats you like that. Admitting abuse is not like suddenly not being the person that she was, but you gave it a try. I'm proud of you for giving it a try. You tried, you gave it a chance. And you said, I always wanted a brother or sister. So at least I wouldn't have been abused alone. So I could see how you totally had this fantasy that finally the two of you could debrief about what had been going on. Like, wouldn't have that have been nice if she could have explained to you what it all meant and why, what she was thinking and tell you how sorry she was, but I don't think you got that. And you hit a nerve. And she said, he took one look at you and refused to have children with me. Back to her whole thing, her looksism, right? She's got this idea like people should look a certain way or they've let her down. And she hit you with that, took one look at you. Is that what it was about? That you just like look terrible or you behave terrible? Or her, her imagining that he didn't want children with a woman who had black hair and black eyes. Like what is her crazy trip here? Who even knows? That's the thing. When I'm outside this, this dynamic with your malignant narcissist mom, it's just like her, her stuff doesn't make sense. It's just so like selfish and cruel that for you to take it personally, it's almost impossible not to do when it's your mother. But I'm sure me and everybody in your life is just like, Oh girl, forget this one. You were visibly shaken and said, what'd you say? And she said, oh, get over it. It's just a joke. Okay. That's the classic narcissist excuse, right? For saying something totally devastating, like that you have no sense of humor. It's just a joke. Okay. So you never saw her again. Okay. So we got her out of the picture. Now you start telling me about what's going on now. So I think, um, do you know what Pollyanna-ish is? Pollyanna is a character, fictional character, and she just like sees the good in everything. And it's a really positive coping mechanism for us and can be used for great good. I, I you know, I feel like I'm still a little Pollyanna-ish, but I think you're being Pollyanna-ish in, in not such a good way because you say here, I now have the ability to see bad relationships and break up with someone, something I wasn't able to do before. 
So you, maybe, you broke up with somebody you weren't into anymore, but you haven't broken up with a, bad, a situation that's quite bad and completely robbing you of all your emotional and psychic energy. So I'm just sort of calling you on that. And it's like, now I don't think you have that yet, but at least the framework is around you. You're sort of like looking at it and asking yourself, are my actions now fitting this thing where I get realistic? And that getting out of bad relationships is a good thing. You're there. So that's good. And you know you have issues to work on. Okay, so there's a young man you can't stop thinking about. You know it's limerence. I love your self-awareness. You keep telling me this stuff. But on one side of your mouth, you're saying, I know this is bad. I know it's not good. You know, it's, it's limerence. And over here, you're like, but it's so amazing. It's like, it's not both, actually. It can't be both. It's, it's just that you're limerent and you're trying to, your part of you is developed enough to start criticizing your limerence. And, and uh, I believe you. Some, sometimes when people are in like a limerent state, they are just trying to like BS everybody. They say what they know you're supposed to say. So I hope you're not doing that. I don't think you are. I think you're actually like kind of partway healed and you, you see the way, but you, you're now like, now that you're limerent again, it's like, ugh, can't do it, can't apply it. So, so this will be a tough love rest of the letter where I talk to you about, about what, what's happening and what to do. All right. He's 31, you're 49. Um, and you say, but I look 38, according to everyone I meet. When you said that, it sounded like your mom talking. Subsequently, everything you told me about him, it's not just the age. It's like he has zero emotional maturity and commitment ability to bring to a relationship with you at your 49-year-old stage of life. So he has zero. It does not matter that you look 38. That doesn't fill the gap. It's looksism. You know what I mean? And um, I, I thought about that a lot. I, and I thought, well, maybe she's just trying to tell me trying to explain why a guy who's 31 would like somebody who's 49, that maybe maybe there was merit in his feelings, why he would like us. He looks, and you said, he looks older than he is. He looks 36 to 40 and you look 38. So you're trying to say there's an overlap in the way you look and people tell you all the time, but that is your, I just, it just sounds like your mom. It just sounds like your mom. It's not about what you look like. It's about where you are in your life. And so it was interesting that you brought that up. And I've seen that before. I'm just going to say that, you know, I get a lot of letters. I read a lot of them. I don't always um, read them on a, answer them on a YouTube. I, I probably read 10 for every one that I accept. And I'll just tell you, I've noticed a pattern when there's been like a narcissistic mom who calls all this attention, very judgmental and critical of the daughter about looks, weight, food, body, in your case, nose, eyes, hair, right? Or was it just me who has the hair? <laughs> I don't know. But when that's happening, there's a tendency to then get very caught up in it. And there's often a, an attraction to, um, uh, to somebody much younger. It's not often, but I've, I've just seen this pattern before. The mother who's very luxist, and then the daughter who, who's, uh, I don't know, having a limerent thing for somebody much younger and then saying, oh, but you see the, you know, they, I look so young, so it's okay. And I'm, what I'm sort of reading between the lines there, and this, this would be sort of a fear any, anybody might have if they were falling for somebody much younger, is like, fear I'm getting older, fear I don't look good enough to be desired, right? That's so deep. That's just so deep in our consciousness. But it has no place in a healthy relationship. Like, we have to be who we are and where we are. And then we make the most of that. It's great to like, you know, dress beautifully, to be attractive, to, you know, show your lovely side of yourself. That's all good. But to try to say, well, I'm actually this thing, but I don't look like I'm this terrible thing of 49. So I'm 59. To me, 49 is young. <laughs> 
But 31, a 31-year-old man is really young, and it would be very, very rare that a relationship with that age difference would work out. It has before. We know a couple of like, you know, the French president or, <laughs> but it, it's, it's going to tend not to work out. These are very diff different things. And so one of the things that I'm going to just put in front of you right now is there's a part of you that cannot deal with a fully available man. And uh, perhaps a part of you that's you know, doesn't feel very complete about a younger phase in your life, you know, and what feels like you got to revisit that because this current phase is not very good. Um, that could be it. I don't want to psychologize it too much. But I will say with pretty much certainty that you're not able to show up for a truly available person if all your emotional energy is pouring into somebody who not only is too young, but is flat out said, you know, just all this stuff. All right. But again, I will come back to the part that I hear that does work, which is the creative collaboration, which is not chopped liver. All right. So you saw him on Facebook, very professional, looks older. And then he reached out to you and his smile is so great. So he's, he's a dazzling, charismatic person and you fell for him and you made plans to be in his town, which is, yeah, okay. It's, it's a level of, it's a level of planning that's acceptable if you're interested in somebody. It's just that, yeah, this is because we know what was really going on with him. It stands out as like you really trying to work your way into something that wasn't a good place for you. Um, we drank, talked and flirted. Okay. So I'm just going to say, if you have attachment wounds from being raised the way you were, I'm going to suggest to you that you don't drink, don't drink at all, or at least don't drink in the first months of dating a man. It's not your friend. It's going to lower your inhibitions. It's going to um, make it really hard for you to do the very nuanced work of paying attention to the signals you're getting, of staying in reality, of not crap fitting to whatever it is that's being asked of you, of not ignoring the difficult details and just jumping right in. Alcohol is not your friend. Anything intoxicating is not your friend. And that kind of stuff can be a fun part of life for people who don't have a problem for it. But for you, after you're already in a relationship, perhaps. And even then I would just say, maybe not. Okay. So if you're with somebody who's on a bender, on a destructive drinking phase with dating tons of women and drowning his sorrows, and you drink with him, you've just jumped in the shark tank. You're here. You are a wounded person who was raised by somebody who was totally selfish, right? And you just jumped in with somebody who is totally selfish. All right. So you held, you, you said we had this great kissing session in a bar. So that's pretty radical. Like a guy you've just met and you have a kissing session in a bar and then go back to his house. I'm just going to put in front of you the word boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Um, you might feel like this was validation for you. If you felt like, oh my gosh, a young man is interested in me. And yeah, there's that validation, but there's no boundaries here. And that's what happens when kids are raised by narcissists. They just have no idea how you don't get to have boundaries. And so you're operating here. What's what it's showing me is this is a phase of your healing that you're not there yet. Like you intellectually see that you don't want to be in something right for you. If you want to not be in something right for you, you cannot drink and make out in the bar with some, with a guy you just met. Right? I mean, just think this through. All right. If you're going to heal from trauma and attachment wounds, and getting involved sexually with somebody is going to just like hijack your brain. You're going to have to guard that tendency of yours very carefully. Much of it is a natural tendency to fall in love, you know, to feel sexual, to, you know, sort of get carried away in a new relationship. That's pretty normal, right? But the part that's trauma 
is just having this giant blind spot to the way this guy is just screaming with red flags. And this drowning as sorrows and dating self-destructive phase, by the way, I would not say is a good person to be in business with either. And, um, and I've, had a, I've been in business now for, I don't know, 22 years or something. And uh, I know all about like <laughs> relying on people who can't be relied upon and thinking back about the red flags that I saw all along and learning my lessons again about the boundaries that I have to have with that. So you thanked him for his honesty, but then he called you the next day and said, why don't we be friends? And, you know, if you've watched my videos, you know how, you know how I am about that, the F word, <laughs> friends, we'll just be friends and you'll be in love with me and I'll be your friend and it'll be great for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> it is great for them. They can feed off all that energy for a guy drowning his sorrows just to have his go-to gal all the time. That's perfect. And then he can just go sleep with whoever. I'm mad at him, but there's no use being mad at him. All that matters is that you wake up. You just need to wake up. Here's the cruel thing about limerence. Limerence will often awaken in you, your creative eyes. You will see things with a beauty and a depth that you haven't ever seen before. And that's part of how falling in love works on our brains. And you're having that brain part of falling in love, but you're not actually getting the love experience of being with somebody. And, you know, I think that they're going to find out one day <laughs> that you know how with a fight or flight response, like if you don't ever run or, you know, you get this, all this adrenaline, it's, it's so that you can run so that you can run away from the tiger. But if there's no tiger and you don't run and you just sit there like stewing and all those um, stress hormones, it's really hard on your body. And so likewise, I think trauma also causes you to overactivate like your, your bonding and falling in love sequence, your hormones, your brain activity switches on, but there is no relationship. And so we end up loving a phantom. We end up with all this energy going into a phantom. And unfortunately, you know, I, I say this again and again, that the energy of you, in your case, a woman falling in love is one of the universe's most powerful energies for creating things. All right. This is a huge creative force and you've been given a great big chalice of it in yourself. You know, you have the creative power to do great things. If you take that power and you've throw it on people who are on a destructive bender and then keep pretending in a fantasy that you're getting it back. I'm telling you what's ahead for you is not fun, not pretty, not creative, not fulfilling. And so I'm just coming in here with very tough love. Um, I answered a letter today from a young woman who's doing something slightly similar, but at, at 21, it's one thing at 49, I'm exhorting you. I'm like, time to get real, time to get real about the rest of your life. And it's so important to get these energy vampires out, get them out, open your eyes. You're not getting anything back here. You're getting, all you're getting back is hope and hope is addictive, but it doesn't turn into fulfillment. Hope, it ends up being quite depressing. And then you have to do more and more in the pursuit of hope to get it. Hope is our dope. Um, so, okay. So here's another thing why I'm getting so tough love on you. You said, uh, it was about a year ago when you first met with him about becoming colleagues and you were still with the, the ex-boyfriend and, and you had that, you were still with him and you brought him along with you when you saw him again for the first time after this makeout session. So I'm calling you out on this. It is okay. First of all, I'll just tell you everything that you're talking about. I've done things at least as inconsiderate and unkind to other people. 
But bringing along the guy you're dating to the guy you had a fling with is really, really cold-hearted and inconsiderate to the guy that you were dating and dishonest. All right, I'm calling you out on it because I know you want help with this and time is short. When you're 49, like it's time. It's time for you to get real. And what is so important, you were raised by somebody who couldn't care about other people. So I'm here just going like, Vivian, it's time to care about other people. You cannot possibly build a loving relationship in the context of you treating other people like things, like props bringing to a meeting with the guy you're crazy about and making out with, okay? I'm not sure if you see that. So you broke up with the guy and maybe he wasn't right for you, but that's not a crime. He didn't deserve to be treated like that. He didn't deserve to witness that energy or to be made to feel how I would imagine he felt being in the room with that, you know, all that like heady, addictive, oh my God, you know, feeling that you were having with this other guy who I will suspect didn't care either about the fact of this boyfriend. The big project rolled around, you had broken up, so you showed up in his hometown where the project was taking place single. And you say that, and I, I'm reading into it, you know, that you had high hopes that you would convert him out of his self-destructive, drunk, sleeping around thing to being who you hoped he was, which is very unlikely to work out. Among other reasons, because when people will put up with that, it, sh it casts shade on their attractiveness. It, it, it's like a, a, attachment wounds cue potential partners that we are not relationship material. I know, I'm giving you so much tough love today here, but I just feel, I just feel moved to do it, Vivian, out of, you know, I just have been there, I know how to get out of it, I'm gonna tell you what to do. You have to wake up to the, the self, the way you're tricking yourself, the way you're tricking other people, and get back in touch with what a relationship is, which is caring about another person. It's caring about them and loving them and supporting them and hoping they'll become their best self. And it's mutual. A good relationship is where two people really want that for each other. I'm also somebody who finds that that creative collaboration with people is one of the closest connections you can have. I love my work and when people work with me, it's like, it's the closest kind of friendship I have. Most of my friends, we do work on projects together at least, or they work in this company um, because we, uh, we're, we're on a common mission together and that really is real and that's something. And I appreciate that you had this, but this part where you're trying to get in all good with his grandma, this is where I feel really sad for you because I hear that you need that. You need a family. You need a family. You need the man with a family who thinks you're wonderful and makes jam for you and is delighted that you cook and adores you and thinks you're great. And, and you need the man who you have jokes on and you create something together. That is the most natural thing in the world. You need it, but you're forming it. Do you remember that scientific experiment? I don't know. They taught about this when I was in college about they took a little baby monkey away from its mom at birth and they gave it a wire mom and the wire mom had a little bottle in it so it could get milk and it would, it had a little patch of like fake fur on it and some wire in the shape of a mother monkey. And the little baby would hold onto the wire and drink out of the bottle, but eventually it died. And I read about this when I was probably, I don't know, in high school or something. Oh, and I just cried and cried and cried. It hit a bad nerve in me. It's really sad. And I just think you're kind of holding onto the wire monkey of a, of a partner with this relationship. And it's very sad and it's not going, it's not feeding you. It's feeding you hope and maybe you're making some money, but 
as I mentioned before, the thing about people who are totally unstable emotionally is they're not even good business partners. So potentially you're throwing away the stability of your career for the fantasy of being in this great, you know, power couple dynamic that you can picture. I get it. I think that, you know, what a lovely thing. Perhaps you will have that with somebody. You know, some famous actors, they don't like being with actors. They like being with normal people <laughs> because the headiness, the headiness is not really great for people with addictive tendencies or trauma. You need people who are grounded. You need people who um, participate in like setting the table, making dinner, doing the dishes, you know, figuring out, making sure the porch is swept, all that stuff. The domestic part of life that you can do together is very much part of what helps traumatize people just ground and feel connected to the world and start to open up their hearts and minds in a way that we were never able to do as kids. The groundedness and safety that you did not get as a kid from somebody who sees you and loves you. Now, somebody who sees you and loves you would never try to take from you your emotional energy in this vampiric way. I'm not trying to make him a bad guy. I just think he's a bad choice for you. That's what I'm saying. Pretty definitely here, right? I, I often am a little bit easier going, but I just think given what you've been through, it's so important for you to take care of your future like this. Okay. So please stop obsessing over him. I live for our interactions. Okay. So that's the, that's the addiction. The addiction makes it feel life and death that you need an interaction for him. And I know about that, like seven more hours and I'm going to see him. I know what that's like. What am I going to wear? That's limerence, all right? You live for the interactions. You love the project ideas, fantasize about them, but why can't you make it stop? And you just told me why, all right? Because you don't have a life outside of this that you're living for. And it's very rare that somebody gets rescued from a life, an empty life by somebody who completely makes their life great. That's a fantasy. It's usually like two people with a pretty good life come together and make it somewhat better life together. That would be, that would be a very realistic model. So you need a pretty good life and a pretty good life is one that's fun where you have friends, you have things to do. You have things that are very meaningful to you. You're doing acts of service. You're actually like serving other people. It's very hard to feel happy if you're not contributing in that way. And you can't make it stop because you're continuing to have contact with him. That's why if you're really ready to make this stop and heal your life, here's what you do. You stop taking new contracts, you complete the contracts you have, and with almost no fanfare, you just say, I'm not going to be doing new contracts with you. And when he goes, well, let's get together and talk about something, say, sorry, I can't do that. You don't have to make a speech. You don't have to break up with him. You guys are not boyfriend and girlfriend. And you're also not partners in a company. Whatever you do, do not become partners in a company. So he's putting your resume on proposals that he puts out. Um, he can do that, uh, but you're not going to take any jobs and you know, you can be as clear as you can. I'm saying very little fanfare, very little drama for your own sake to just sort of ease on out of that whole thing. You have an extremely uncommitted little partnership there, which is good. You can get out. You need to stop having contact with him. Then you need to stop talking about him. If you need a place to get your feelings out, cause it's, you know, it's just like so much emotion, right? Just Go check out my daily practice course. That's what it's for. It's about taking your distressed thoughts and feelings and getting them out on paper twice a day. And this is a little, this is a little technique well-known. You, you don't let yourself talk about a, a bad thing. You let yourself write about it. And if you really want to do that, you get a buddy and you can read to them about it. But do not get into indulgent conversations with women friends about this guy or everything you loved about him or you know, everything you hoped or what a jerk he is. 
There's nothing to be gained by analyzing this. It's an addiction. It'd be like going and talking about, well, let's talk about heroin. You know, here's everything I loved about it. Like you've done that before. You've already done that before. A therapist might be okay for that, but I will tell you that I spent like two years trying to deal with a case of limerence in a therapist's office where all she did was go, tell me more, tell me more. And she was a, a good therapist, you know, by, uh, you know, a professor, like had training, all that stuff. And it nearly killed me. I needed somebody to go, cut it out, cut it out. This is like bullshit. It's a fantasy. Just stop. And the minute somebody did that stuff started to get better for me. I just needed to be called on it. And yes, you're right. You do see reality. He's too young for you. You're too old for him. You're in a different place. Um, he's not in a good place emotionally himself. There's never going to be anything with him. And so, so why limerence? Uh, just, just because for you right now, you still have enough fantasy delusion going on that you can keep thinking that there's anything to be gained by spending time talking about him or thinking about him. Yes, you can stop thinking about somebody. And this is a trick I learned in my teen years, that if you want to stop thinking about something, you just discipline yourself to do it. I'm not going to think about that now or worry. You can do this with something you're worried about. I'm not going to worry right now. You set yourself a time when you can think about it. And nowadays, I always do the daily practice. I'm writing my fears and resentments. That's a 15-minute chunk, basically, usually maybe a little less, sometimes quite a bit more. And that's where I can obsess on things and get it out on paper, ask for it to be removed, rest in meditation, and then get back to the here and now. Because here and now is where all your potential is, all your power. So come back to us. Get Come back from the land of the dead with relationships that don't exist and will never happen, all right? That's a ghost town. Come back. It's full of life over here. There's plenty of future ahead for you if you can begin to show up for it. And yeah, there will be a feeling of withdrawal at first, and that's why you need tools, which is what we have here with the membership and courses and everything, and you need support. You need friends who are walking this path too. In your case, I would suggest maybe checking out Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I think that might be a place where you can meet other women walking the path. Whatever you do, stay away from the men there. It's not a place to pick up guys to date. Yeah, think about it, okay? <laughs> one is enough. One person with this problem is enough. And just go there and find women friends and look for the ones who have the most recovery and get yourself a sponsor. Find the woman who really has worked the steps and has changed her life and see if she'll help you do the same. Now, magical thinking is usually considered a bad thing, but getting PTSD during childhood and going into magical thinking and getting really good at it may just have saved you from having your spirit destroyed. And I want to tell you why I say that. So when bad things were happening and a parent hurt you or abandoned you or told you you were worthless, your little child's mind, you know, if you had stayed present and lucid in those moments, you would have had to absorb that blow. You would have had to take it in. And it's so unthinkably painful that it, it could have shattered you emotionally and psychologically. And I mean, what parent even says these kind of things? I've heard them do it, it happens. But who would abandon a kid? Who would physically hurt them? So as a kid, you couldn't take that in. Your mind did something incredibly brilliant and separated you and shut down the feelings and hardened that little tender part of you that could perceive reality, that was tuned into the nuance of what everything means and where people are coming from. And it put those parts of you in a safe place, in quasi-unconsciousness. And that's how you dealt with experiences that could otherwise have hurt you even more. So checking out, thank goodness, 
that we were able to do that so that there's an intact little spirit in there now and we have the good fortune to bring this part of ourselves back into the world it's not always obvious how to do that and when we make an effort it can be clunky and inconsistent and then we keep slipping back sometimes into that checked out mode and when we do that as adults people can hurt us we get confused instead of angry and we cling instead of running away but we can keep trying to keep coming back up out of ourselves and and follow that road to healing that is what it's like so today i have a letter from a woman i'll call olivia and she is right there like healing but sliding back into that little place that's unfortunately for her right now pretty negative but she can't totally see it yet so i'm going to read her letter out loud and then see if i can help her open her eyes and get unstuck and take one good strong leap forward in her healing and here's what olivia says dear fairy according to your quiz i score a hundred percent in cptsd symptoms as does my mother i don't know anything about my father i've never even seen a photo of him my mom was an abused child she was beaten abandoned and sexually abused she was a heroin addict when she got pregnant with me in her early 20s and my father was a party fling she decided to go ahead with the pregnancy with me long story short she did give up on drugs when she decided to keep me and i do believe she did the best she could given what little she had to work with nevertheless she was not present or fully capable of raising children i have a younger sister she says we were extremely neglected to the point of our basic needs not being met and I have little memory of any physical affection. We also moved often and struggled financially, which created a general lack of stability. She was a single mom, putting herself through school and working, which left very little time for us. When we were five and seven, my sister and I were up before her and riding the city bus to school alone without anyone to prepare breakfast or pack a lunch. We often stole candy from 7-Eleven to feed ourselves. I could go on with the many layers of dysfunction in our family, but I think you probably have a sense that it simply was not healthy or safe for a child. All right, I got the picture. It's coming together now. So that's some background. And Olivia says, Now I'm in my 40s, barely scraping by financially, and have yet to experience a true, healthy, stable, and loving relationship. I live with a friend who also happens to be someone I obsessively fell for a few years back when we first knew each other. I became convinced through intense dream and meditation experiences that we were soulmates and mystically bonded. I had no idea I was just one of his many booty calls. He was good looking, troubled, bad boy archetype, and I was living in a fantasy world thinking that he must feel it too. I can't deny that there have been some very bizarre synchronicities, but this person flat out rejected me to my face and I kept hanging on to a sliver of hope that one day it would all change. He would see and love me and we'd live out our fairy tale destiny. Over the past year, we have established a very different platonic dynamic. Though I still feel anxious at times and feelings do resurface, mainly sadness associated with the feeling of being unwanted and rejection and being on my own. I quit hooking up with him when I set a standard that I would not be sexually involved with anyone who didn't actually choose me, see me, and love me. And needless to say, I've been celibate ever since. I'm renting a room in his house at a very affordable rate because he helped me out of a situation where I had nowhere to go. 
I'm working diligently on building a business and he's supportive in that. He also understands what it's like not to have family to back you up and I believe wants to be there for me in that way. We now play as if we're more like siblings who help each other like family. He refers to me as his sister. He also had a really rough upbringing and is focused on healing. I'm well aware of how messy this all probably sounds, but our relationship continues to improve. I feel that he's been a really tough teacher and mirror for me to see where I'm not well, especially in terms of codependency and extreme people pleasing in his case. My female friend actually told me that it was looking like Stockholm syndrome, given the way that this guy was treating me. I'm doing all I can to shed light on that and change the behavior. The main reason I bring all of this up is that despite the positive shift in our dynamic, me accepting that he's not the one, circling a lot, I must look like a, like a mean teacher here, but I'm going to go over this again and I just want to make sure we talk about some of these key phrases you're using. So accepting that he's not the one for me, though when he's particularly sweet, says Olivia, and he's now more than he ever was, these flickers of future faking do resurface until I talk myself out of it. I have an underlying fear that my dynamic with him may be blocking me from meeting someone who would be right for me. He now has a great girlfriend who's helping him heal and grow, which I would think would help clear the space even more. But I'm basically looking for some perspective from someone who understands CPTSD. I'm happy with my living situation and I care for him deeply. I'm just curious if maybe I'm not catching a blind spot and would love your input. Thank you for taking the time to read this. I'm very grateful. Olivia, I think when you wrote to me, I, you, you've seen enough of my videos to probably guess where I'm going to come from on this, okay? I think that you are in some serious magical thinking. And I'm noticing some phrases here that tend to come from new age types of disciplines and communities. And you may have seen, I have a video, I'll link it at the end of this one, about ways that new age myths can be used to manipulate people. And I think that while you're kind of being manipulated here, most of all, you're deceiving yourself. All right, tough love. But let's go through your letter and I'll tell you why I say that. Okay. First, I heard your background. I, I don't think anybody who was abandoned at that level, who, whose mom was a heroin addict, who had to get themselves out on the city bus and eat it and steal candy at 7-Eleven <laughs> when they're five, that's just, you know, I totally understand. I understand as few others can actually what that can do to you and how it can distort your perception of what it means to love somebody or be a friend or be a brother and sister, all right? So you're in your 40s and you haven't yet had a truly healthy, stable and loving relationship. And I think that, you know, you had told me a little more that I didn't read here, but you've been working really hard on yourself. You tend to be a hermit. Um, some people are really, truly introverted, but a lot of people are hermits because it's triggering to be around people. And so I'm going to guess that whatever your personality is like, people are triggering for you and you crave a safe space where you know who it is you know who you're living with and you you can feel kind of safe and taken care of being in your 40s and not being financially on your feet you know it happens to the best of us right but i'm hearing here that this could be sort of a setup for you to be extremely vulnerable and dependent on somebody 
who is feeding off of your energy, your romantic energy being in that presence. So I'm just going to go through some areas that I circled one by one and not just jump to what it is I'm about here. Let's build up to this. Okay. You became convinced through intense dream and meditation experiences that you were soulmates and mystically bonded. It's called limerence. And that is something really common for people with childhood trauma, especially people who were abandoned. And limerence is this thing that's something like being in love. But what's strange about it is it involves a whole bunch of obsession. You'll find yourself like just trying to read into every little thing that the other person says or does. There's a huge element of fantasy there. And you know, especially if you're kind of involved in, in um, spiritual new age type stuff, there's going to be some validation for this that, oh yes, your fantasy about this has some, has some reality to it. But with CPTSD, not all fantasies have reality to it. You can have a vision of what you want for your life, but when you keep imagining that somebody is your special somebody, but they have a girlfriend, they don't want to be with you, then it's a, it's a toxic drug that in effect, even though you don't want to be, you're taking a drug to try to numb out what's horrible. And the trouble with limerent relationships is they almost, they, they very, very rarely can evolve into something like neutral and safe. So I'll get to that. All right. So soulmates and mystically bonded. Um, this may really upset a lot of people listening, but I think if you have CPTSD and attachment issues, I would just get rid of the whole idea of soulmates. It's, it's not a helpful concept and it's a, it's a phrase, it's a figure of speech that people use. It also goes along with um, the idea of twin flames. And if I had a dollar for every time people had written to me about um, how they used to believe in twin flames, which is like where you believe that you're the same soul as somebody, uh, it's just not true. I'm just going to call it. It's not true. It's, um, it's a form of fantasy and it can be used to manipulate people. Uh, it's a way of convincing people that even though a relationship is just totally awful and you don't get what you want and you, maybe you're a side thing or a, um, a source, um, a source of energy or romantic validation for somebody that it all means something. It's a way that people get hooked in to bad relationships. So that's why I'm just calling it. All right. So then in your letter, you said, I can't deny there have been some bizarre synchronicities. Okay. So when you, there's a couple things you say here where I can tell you're not platonic. You're still in it. The magical thinking is there, but you're fighting it. You're sort of like, I'm trying to accept that we're just friends and I'm living in his house and he has a girlfriend, but there are these bizarre synchronicities. Later in the letter, you say, uh, I'm trying to accept that he's not the one for me, but when he's particularly sweet and he is now more than ever, these flickers of future faking do resurface until I talk myself out of it. So I think you mean you future fake yourself. And for anybody watching, future faking is when somebody manipulates another person by saying, it's going to be so great, baby, we're going to get married. And they do this like when you barely know them. And if you're very vulnerable, you go along with it and believe it. And future faking, I'd say that when people say, you know what, I think that we're soulmates or we had a past life together. That is, you know, that is a form of future faking. It's, it's, it's sort of trying to trick somebody into thinking there's something there, but there's no intention to follow up on it. They may occasionally think they intend to follow up on it, but future faking is, it's um, connected to a lot of narcissistic behavior and manipulative behavior where somebody is just trying to get what they want. 
So you know that word, but if you were applying it to him, I, I don't know if he's future faking. I think you, you might be future faking yourself is what I'm saying. Okay. So then you kind of, you say that, uh, there are bizarre synchronicities, but, and here you come back to reality. This person flat out rejected me to my face and I kept hanging on to a sliver of hope that one day it would all change. He would see and love me and we'd live out our fairy tale destiny. All right. So when you say fairy tale, I know you're being ironic and you're being silly, but I know what limerence is like, and it is a fairy tale. <laughs> That is what's going on. It's a pretend story and it's a fantasy. It's a form of escapism. So, you know, trauma reactions, it's like fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And when you go into fantasy, it's a form of flight. You're escaping. Reality is too hard and too painful. And there's these little reminders that something's terribly wrong and change is going to be required and change is scary. And so it's just like, whoosh, I'm just going into this fantasy. Because really, you know, this is going to work out. There's, there is no writing on the wall that this is going to work out at all. All right. So I, I'll just be the mean old fairy who tells you that. It, um, this is not going to work out. But right now, you guys kind of have an agreement that you get to stay there and fawn on him. You know, think that he's really special and great and helping you. There's a lot of language of helping here. Um, you did say it's almost impossible to be yourself around him because you're so nervous. And that is, um, that's just one more sign like that this is not like a good relationship. A good relationship, for, whether it's platonic or romantic, means you can be yourself with somebody. You're not afraid to be yourself. But you know what happens, Olivia? It, what we do is we stop being ourselves because being ourselves would make it all too painfully obvious that this is like, it's like a cat walking on the piano keys, right? It's just, it's not, something is really discordant. It's not working. There's no harmony here. And so you're cramming this belief system in that somehow it's okay. Well, you know what we call it around here. We call it crap fit. And that's what we do when we got so good as, as kids at fitting ourselves to crap. Now, I bet when you were at 7-Eleven stealing candy with your sister, I bet you guys were so good at looking like good little innocent girls, right? And you were good little innocent girls. I mean, kids got to eat, right? You were good. But I bet you learned to start putting out an exterior version of yourself for other people to see while you get in there and was like stealing, you know, candy, and uh, having grown up kind of poor and neglected myself, I just know there's a lot of shame involved. It's a lot of shame. And a person can get a very strong need to sort of cover it up. And, and when you get so good at that, when you get so good at covering up your shame, that's crap fit. And if you don't heal that, see, that's a beautiful adaptation to cope with being a little kid and not having food. In your 40s, becoming dependent on somebody where you can't be yourself and pretending that there's like some sort of magic to the whole thing, that is the same thing. It's, it's, it's the same survival technique, only now it's not helping you survive. It's sabotaging your ability to survive. Like this is a fragile situation. And for you, a, a wonderful next step in your life would be to heal from your trauma. And to heal from trauma, most of the time, we really need to be like in kind of a peaceful, safe space where we're not getting triggered all the time. So then you say, over the past year, we've established a very different platonic dynamic. 
Um, and I'm just going to say, I think he's established a platonic dynamic um, or a, a, a platonic boundary. The dynamic sounds like it's still very much romantic. Though I still feel anxious at times and feelings resurface, mainly sadness associated with feeling unwanted, rejection, and being on my own. Oh, I mean, I know I don't need to tell you this, but you see the parallel of where you were as a child. And now there you are again, rejected, abandoned, on your own, and trying to hold on. Olivia, you're stealing candy right now. That's really what's going on. You're not getting food and uh, you're stealing candy. And you describe here, you feel sad. You say, I quit hooking up with him when I set a standard that I would not be sexually involved with anyone who didn't actually choose me and see me and love me. So I'm proud of you for doing that, to stop having sex with him, but you had to set the standard. Like he says, I don't have feelings for you. I'm flat out rejecting you, but I will keep having sex. I'm taking a lot of letters about this recently because I want to talk really strongly on your behalf and say, so long as you are entangled in relationships like this, it won't be enough to not have sex. If you're living there, if you're sad all the time, if you're abandoned all the time, it's like you have a, you know, a wound, right? And you just keep like scraping it off. The scab is off and it's bleeding again and again and again every time it hurts you. How are you going to heal with that going on, right? But I get you. I think you're scared. I think you're really, really scared that you can't make it. So you said, I'm renting a room in his house at a very affordable rate because he helped me out of a situation where I had nowhere to go. So, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person who had to live in a difficult situation because you had nowhere to go. But this has been going on a year and you're saying that you're working on building a business and he's supportive. Um, I'm going to suggest something like that sort of flat is maybe more advice than you want. But building a business to get out of there sounds like a recipe for vagueness and that for the short term, getting a job is what would get you out of there. Getting a job is what would get you out of there. And it's possible to build your business while you have a job. I did. I built up my business as a single mom and uh, it takes a lot of energy and focus, but you can do that. A job would bring in immediate income and not have to, you know, bring some business to fruition. He also understands what it's like not to have a family to back you up. And I believe he wants to be there for me in that way. He's not a family. Him saying that and him being there like a sister, that's not a family. Okay. This is not your family. This is a guy you used to have sex with who'd like to still be having sex with you, who's having sex with somebody else who doesn't love you. And so I know your family of origin was, a, was, was very much like that where you were not loved. But I want you to have that. If you want to stop having the suffering right now, you're going to need to make a conscious decision to stop having these crap fit relationships. It's so hard. I know. I know because it means walking away from the only family you know right now. It feels like the only thing there will ever be. And I know that you've been through a lot and that could feel really destabilizing. So there might be a period of transition coming up and I'll talk about that. One really big red flag I saw here, um, you're saying the relationship is improving. And what I'm hearing is that you're getting better and better at stuffing and hiding how you really feel about it and how hurt you are and how much this is paralyzing you moving forward in your life with being able to actually find a real relationship or get on your feet financially. And you say, I feel that he's been a really tough teacher and mirror for me to see where I'm not well especially in terms of codependency and extreme people-pleasing in this case. 
Those words, teacher and mirror, for a, a for a manipulative and sad relationship, that's where I was like, this is you're into some new age stuff, I think, right? Because that's a that's a hallmark of it. A tough teacher and mirror. And those are put forth towards people who are being manipulated as a justification for saying, sure, this makes you feel humiliated and empty and sad and unable to function. But I'm your teacher. I'm a tough teacher. This is not teaching you anything. It's sucking the soul out of you. Okay? I'm just going to say it really strongly because you wrote to me and you know what I'm like, right? I care very much about you. I relate to you too. Um, and a mirror, the mirror to show you where you're not well. Well, have you seen enough, Olivia? I'm just going to say that with, with great directness. Have you seen enough? You're not well. You have codependence and extreme people pleasing. All right, you're fawning. That's a trauma reaction. And you're sacrificing any opportunity to care for yourself and take care of your own life and be fulfilled and heal yourself to try to make it feel okay for him to do whatever he's doing. Your friend says it looks like Stockholm Syndrome. I'm with your friend. <laughs> it looks like Stockholm Syndrome. I don't think he's abusing you directly. I think he is a selfish person who is saying what he wants and you're agreeing to it. So in his mind, there's no problem here. And we get letters all the time where, you know, one party says, you know, I don't want a relationship. And the other person says, well, I can put up with that for now, but it could be a relationship in the future, right? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that's morally wrong. We can, we can, the, the manipulative person can, we can tell ourselves that we got consent and it's mutual, but it's not. We're taking advantage of someone who needs love so bad they will say anything to keep us from leaving. So that's what I have to say about him. And then you say, um, so you're accepting that he's not the one for you. Although you still keep getting this idea, the, these flickers, right? And I'm just telling you, so long as you're in this guy's presence, you're going to see flickers. He's somebody you were attracted to to begin with. He's somebody who has no compunction at all about having somebody he was sleeping with, would sleep with now, and a new girlfriend all in the same space. Like that works for him. And maybe it works for his new girlfriend. I don't know. Maybe this is actually really horrible for her too. And you might want to consider that as well. But I don't know. She is helping him heal and grow. Ah, so he's really good at getting women to help him and heal him and help him grow. This is starting to make me mad because you had said he's a tough teacher to show you that you're codependent and extreme people pleasing. So healthy adults, they don't heal each other. Okay, that's there's there are rare instances, I think, where a broken person ends up uh, with a with a very profound friendship with somebody who ends up being um, of a spouse and there was some sort of like assistance with healing there that could happen but, but that's not what's happening here he's not healing and growing he is just he's having a great time that's all but he's pray that when you tell a person who's vulnerable and codependent that they are healing you and helping you grow that's how you give them their fuel to keep them around and so a lot of what I'm guessing this is, is it's kind of like a narcissist codependent dance here where the narcissist gets that, you know, adoring energy and the codependent gets to feel like they're healing and growing or having a tough teacher, a mirror. And all of it is completely destructive to your life. So just calling it out. All right. I'm calling it out. So you say, I have an underlying fear that my dynamic with him may be blocking me from meeting someone who would be right for you. 
So Olivia, here's the thing I want you to like really like take in here. If you were to meet the person who's right for you, they would not want to be with you because your energy and your heart are just so entangled with this guy. He's like, he's running the show here. So a healthy person does not want to get involved with somebody who has that kind of confusion and entanglement. You know what they want? They want someone who takes care of themselves. They want someone who has self-respect and who wouldn't dream of trying to help and heal or have a tough teacher that causes them pain, but who takes positive steps on their own behalf. That's how healthy people behave. That's what they're looking for. Until we heal, or at any stage of our healing, the relationships that we end up with are, are usually a reflection of where we are ourselves. And so right now you're in something that's a little more like a transactional relationship. You know, I'll give you this if you give me that. So he gives you security. You give him the, you know, adoring energy that he wants. And that's transactional. That's not right. It's not, that's not love. And I get it. He's your friend and he's, you know, encouraging and supportive, but I'm just saying you can do so much better. You can do like 20 times better, but you're going to need to heal first. I don't think that you're going to go out of the frying pan and into a wonderful relationship. There's like this fire that you have to walk through first. And so jumping into a relationship from here would be very likely to have a similar dynamic or something just as, just as unpleasant and destructive for you. And you know, I don't think we have like nine lives on this. Maybe we have nine, but we don't have 20. And so the, every time that we get completely spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, functionally, financially invested in somebody and the whole thing falls apart, it's like something gets torn off of us and we can't totally heal that. And we walk into the next thing with some wounds from that. And if this happens again and again and again, um, I've heard it called like a piece of cardboard where, you know, cardboard gets glued together and you pull them apart and it's, and the, and the outer layer of the cardboard gets torn off every time. And soon you just have this like flimsy kind of piece of brown paper with holes in it and chunks of glue. <laughs> That's what it feels like, right? So the object of the game here is to stop bonding with these, you know, lousy, with these pieces of cardboard. Stop bonding. Start to heal yourself. And, you know, I think one of the problems is that everybody says that, but nobody knows how to do it. I know how to do it. That's what I'm teaching here. I do know how to heal. I can teach you what I did. All right. If you ever want, go check out all my courses or my membership. That's what we do here. We get real with each other. We use tools that help to come out of the, the bad dream of what we think we have to put up with and all the anger and all the grief that drives us into trauma-driven lives and decisions. Okay. So um, those courses are down below in the description section. So you were thinking that he has this girlfriend and that would help clear the space even more. So I see what you mean that sometimes when you are pining away for somebody, when they're with somebody else, it kind of helps you face up to the reality. But in your case, it's not. You're still pining away. I don't think you're at a place where you can deeply consider other people's feelings. But, but for reference, Hanging on to this guy with all your romantic energy for him when some other woman is in a relationship with him is undermining to her. If you were to accept that you're not with him and just let them experience whatever relationship they were going to have, uh, it would probably be better for everybody. And I'm going to guess, you know, it's not going to work out for anybody probably, but I don't know. You know, I can't, I don't have eyes for the future, but I know for you that hanging around that relationship is not clearing a space. 
And even that, those words, clearing a space, just remind me of that new age manipulation. It's like, it's okay, you know, he can bring her in. It's not like crowding the house. It's clearing a space, right? I just think it's BS. I'm mad at him for you. And I want to help you face this and, and get out. Okay. But, all right. So I'm looking for some perspective for someone who understands CPTSD. So there you have it, Olivia. That's my tough love. So here's, here's what I would suggest to you, if you can handle it, is take a period of time, um, because I'm guessing that it would be very destabilizing for you to move on and you don't have the money right now. But let's say three months, three months to go get a job, start saving up some money and get ready to have enough money to get a deposit on your own place to live, maybe with housemates. And um, for people with CPTSD and especially for you as a hermit, I realize housemates might be tough. So maybe a studio apartment, something very small, you know, what they call in England a bed sit. It only needs to be small at first because when you heal your personal ability to direct your life and do things like get a better job, they just, it just starts getting easier and easier. And one thing about, <laughs> about being single is you, it, it pushes you out of the house. So some things that you might want to do is get yourself out there to things that don't cost money that connect you with people who are also interested in healing. And I'm going to suggest 12 step communities. Um, it's, there's no money involved. You know, you can donate a, a little bit of money if you want, but there's no money involved. There's no authority and there's nobody who can come in and romantically take advantage of you. Um, and in exchange for some kind of position or advancement in the organization. And I, that's not to say that vulnerable people don't have flings. But for you right now, celibate would not just mean not having sex, but not getting emotionally connected and entangled with a man right now. So you know who that leaves? Women. And if you're like a lot of us who had tough mothers and who tend to be attracted to manipulative men, you may not have great relationships with women. And I would just say, just let that be your number one priority. Women friends in 12-step meetings. Uh, there's some, everybody qualifies for one or another. And one thing for you, you definitely qualify for Al-Anon. That was my safe space when I first needed somewhere to go to get away from all the toxic stuff I was involved with. And it was fantastic. And I met wonderful people who are working hard on themselves or who needed support. And I was able to, you know, be somebody who could listen to somebody else and support them and ask how they were doing. That was a growth experience for me. That was a mirror. It was not a tough teacher. It was a pleasant, lovely, warm bath with roses in it of a teacher. How about that? Right? <laughs> Get that kind of teacher. And, you know, there's, I think right now, as I'm recording this, there's, there's not always infinite in-person meetings to go to. I don't think that limerence is always an addiction. I think that that's, it's a close enough description of what it is. When we have childhood PTSD, there's stuff going on there that are like wounds, like psychological wounds. But for practical purposes, you might as well teach it as an addiction. So there's also programs for people who have love addiction, uh, where you can also get support for separating. And I just, I just encourage you to stay out of environments that are really conducive to you getting to feed off your energy from validation and um, kind of fatherliness from men. If it's genuinely fatherliness, not somebody where there's any kind of attraction, that, that could be kind of a nice thing for you to be around. And find the people who are safe for you. And safe people are people who are not seeking a romantic or sexual relationship with you. And they're people who want the best for you, right? 
So one thing about being in the meetings is that you can get a second opinion from your newfound friends when you go looking for a job. And the there's a type of job that people who have this kind of vulnerability are very vulnerable to, and that's to, to go work for yet another, um, usually man, who wants to suck that adoring energy. It doesn't, you know, it may not be a romantic type of thing, but who wants to suck that adoring energy out of you in return for, um, you know, a pretty low wage. <laughs> And because of your experience, people-pleasing and codependence, you would be obliged to accept that. You would sort of get back right into that same mind F that you are living in right now. So basically any job can get screwed up through exploitative relationships and entanglements. And that is one of the attractions of self-employment. And I know that that's a goal for you. And you can set out that goal and you can begin that on a small scale. But just to get money coming in right away, I would recommend a really straightforward job where you do something that needs to be done. At the end of the day, you clock out. And it's never about some complicated dynamic with a boss or, you know, appearing with them at parties or or listening to their problems or anything like that, like a super clean, straightforward job. And something that comes to mind is stocking shelves in a grocery store, editing video. That may not be a skill you have, but that's a skill that I developed and I loved it because it's a service <laughs> that you can do without getting any kind of entanglement with people. You can pass things over online, but online jobs, the one limitation is you're not going to be around people. And one way or another, I'm going to encourage you to have a balance of being with people and having some time to rest and recover as a person who feels inclined to be a hermit. You want to be with people and you want to rest and recover. When you're sad inside and feeling empty, romantic obsession can sometimes feel like the brand new direction that you've craved all your life. It's a fresh breeze. It's a reason for living. And for a person with unhealed trauma, the feeling of falling in love with another person can quickly turn into a portal where you abandon yourself. Life becomes all about them and things begin to fall apart in your own life. Other people can see you're acting in a destructive way, but when the other person doesn't feel that way about you and your obsession with the person is the thing that's making you feel like life is worth living, you may find yourself making up any reason you possibly can why you should continue to pour your emotions, your love, and your hopes into this relationship that doesn't even exist. This is limerence. It's an infatuation that's not actually a reciprocal, stable relationship. And two signs that it's happening are you're searching for hidden signs that the person who doesn't want you secretly does want you or belong with you. And two, you find yourself giving mystical meaning to ordinary things, all in the service of keeping the fantasy, which is actually destroying you, alive, up in the air, you know, full of energy for you. So it is like being under a spell. How do you break it? Because leaving this fantasy can often feel like your world is crashing around you and it's painful. So people have a very hard time, even when they know they need to stop it, it's very hard to do. So I have a letter today from a woman I'll call Lisa. She writes, Hi, Anna. I was emotionally neglected as a child with an alcoholic father and anxious mother. Most of my adolescent memories are of crying alone and pleading for someone to care. I was also the youngest of my siblings, so I was often left out and took on the role of scapegoat. Lots of rejection, exclusion, etc. 
I've released this resentment and have understanding and compassion for my family, but I'm still having trouble rewriting the story. I'm not sure what she means by that. Uh, I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to be circling things that I want to come back to. I'm going to read her letter through, then we'll come back and see if we can help Lisa. Okay. The rejection pattern continued as I've had the recurring cycle of falling, quote, hopelessly in love with people who are unavailable, not ready, not willing, etc. And when I say in love, I mean unhealthily obsessed, romanticizing endlessly for years. Continuous rejection has kept me in a state of feeling not good enough. Okay. My current conundrum is complex. The most recent manifestation of this pattern began about two years ago. We met while traveling and I felt that soul recognition feeling at first eye contact. We also recognized very quickly our shared passion of creating an off-grid community. And we received the message that we were supposed to work together on that mission. Our destinations were aligned, so we decided to drive across the country together. He reminded me oddly of my father. It started slow. We didn't share intimacy until a few weeks in. Then we had sex and all my emotions, wounds, attachments, fears hit me like a train. And the first few times this happened, he held really good space for me, like almost too good. And I wanted to cling to that feeling of finally having the support I'd been yearning for. It did help me heal some of my father wounds so beautifully. This scared him because he doesn't want me to be dependent on him in any way. His walls went up quickly after that, and he pulled back, which only triggered my anxious attachment to reveal itself even more. We were able to work through it enough to maintain connection, and when we parted ways, we decided we would stay in a long-distance relationship until we reunited in the place that we would start community together. While apart, I was the only one that initiated any contact. When we would talk, it always felt cut short, like he wasn't fully present or interested. He always had something better to be doing. He said he just wasn't great at long distance. When I would express my concerns, it actually would only push him further away. So I, quote, broke up with him a few times because it was too difficult for me to bear, although breaking up with him didn't actually ease my longing and heartache. It made it worse. Fast forward a year later, and we are reunited, him and I, and a few other friends who were gifted land. This whole experience was so divinely guided. Dreams coming true. I get to live in a beautiful fairy jungle with my soul family. The only problem, I'm still infatuated with him, and he only wants to be friends because, in his words, he's not ready for a relationship. We're living together, sleeping in the same room, basically together 24-7, but with no intimacy, verbal reassurance, validation, or deep connection. I started experiencing CPTSD flashbacks and having intense emotional pain. My expression of that pushes him away energetically, thicker walls. We spiral into our toxic avoidant and anxious dynamic, and he doesn't feel inclined to do the work to meet me in the middle because we're not in a romantic partnership. The rest of the farm family started to see my big emotional outbursts, and it, I became draining for them. So everybody is setting boundaries. My inner hurt child receives this personally as exclusion and rejection feeling so similar to being excluded by my siblings growing up. I continue to be triggered 
explode, feel guilt and shame, apologize and plead for understanding. They don't seem to really understand. They just feel exhausted and so do I. So I decided to take space and here we are. I've been gone for about a week now. I'm still experiencing anxious attachment now toward the whole family and I feel left out. I really want to be able to live there and reach harmony because it feels so much like my home, my tribe, and where I'm supposed to be. I feel that his reflection in my life is very karmic and has brought a lot of healing for both of us. He shows up as best he can and offers the support he feels comfortable providing. It doesn't seem to be enough for me because I always want more, and that's frustrating for him. I know I need to release attachment and expectations of him and move in to acceptance that he does not want a romantic partnership with me. I'm not sure how to not take it personally and stop feeling so sensitive around him. Any words of wisdom would be appreciated. Okay, gosh, Lisa, this sounds so painful and I'm really glad you wrote. We're going to go through this again and I'm going to help you hear what you're telling me. But what I hear is that you are working so hard to take what's actually happening and turn it into something magical and meaningful. And I'm assuming this is because it's so painful you can't face it. So this is gonna be, you know, I don't wanna be hard on you, but it might be hard for you to hear this because, because I think what's going on is a lot plainer than you've allowed yourself to see, okay? So this is really common for people with CPTSD. You're not alone. This is, this is how limerence works. I know you know that's what this is. All right. Limerence for anybody who's new to the word. It's infatuation, obsession with somebody, usually does not characterize an actual relationship that's reciprocated. And one of the key signs is that you're looking for hidden meaning in things, hidden signs that this is actually a big deal relationship, even though the other person doesn't know it yet. Okay, that's, and that's what's going on here. That's what I hear. So you start out, you tell us a little bit about your past, and this part is so, just made me so sad. You were emotionally neglected as a child. I'm so not surprised when I hear how this is playing out for you. Alcoholic dad, anxious mother. All right, so there's the roles. And most of your teenage memories are of crying alone and pleading for someone to care. And it just sounds like that's exactly what's going on right now. So in a way, you're, the situation you've got yourself into right now has you sort of in an adolescent place, a childlike place, where, you know, the problem with being a teenager is you don't get to leave, you kind of have to just endure it. So you were the youngest of the siblings, you often got left out and took on the role of scapegoat. Okay, left out, that sure came up again, huh? Um, still having trouble rewriting the story. So I don't know what you mean by that. I think you mean, you know, changing the course of your life. And I will help you do that. But if you mean, trying to pretend what's happening isn't happening, like rewriting a story, I'm gonna help you not do that. I want you to look at the story, how it's really playing out, because that's, the truth is what you need to heal, all right? So the rejection pattern continued, and you've, you'd had, yeah, rejection, so much rejection. And you've had a recurring cycle of falling hopelessly in love with people who are unavailable, not ready, not willing. And when you say love, you mean unhealthily obsessed, romanticizing endlessly for years. And you know what? You're right. That is different than love. 
obsessing on somebody is it's just kind of like a place you go in your mind it's an escape it's not really the verb of loving another person and you know if we were going to be strict about it if you really love someone and they don't want to be with you then you would let them not be with you you wouldn't put any more energy into trying to make them into something that they're not that's what real love is that's a tall order when you're obsessed with somebody i know and you say continuous rejection has kept me in a state of feeling not good enough so yep there it is. So, but I want to help you become empowered in this story to see how this is actually a situation you're creating. All right. So you say the most recent manifestation began about two years ago. You were traveling. You say we met while traveling and I felt that soul recognition feeling at first eye contact. So I don't know if you know this, but that soul recognition at first eye contact is a limerent belief, a limerent behavior. That, you know, I realize you may have a spirituality where you believe that souls suddenly find each other and then it all works out. But I can't tell you the number of letters I get from people who are using that kind of new age belief system or spirituality, which might otherwise be helpful or meaningful to them. They're using it to put themselves in terrible situations. And this is where it begins. I feel a soul recognition, but because of the way you were raised, I'm just going to say, and the way it played out, what you're recognizing there is somebody who's not into you. Something, a feeling that you have had before in relationships with your father, of rejection, of being left out. So there's a recognition there, and it feels like a soul recognition. Now, I know you're going to go on to say that you have this other destiny going on, but if it were your destiny and it were good for you, it wouldn't feel like soul death. Because that's what you're describing you're going through is soul death. Okay. You said, we also recognized very quickly our shared passion of creating an off-grid community, okay, and received the message that we were supposed to work together on that mission. And so, again, received the message that you were supposed to work together. This is the kind of thing that limerent people often seize onto. Now, you did end up creating a community together. So, you know, you got the idea, you both wanted to do it, and you felt like that. I'm just going to put stuff in plain English. I'm just going to take the sort of spiritualization of this off of it and just say, you met, you decided this was a goal of both of yours, and you decided that you would go for it and you would try to do this. Then you say, it started slow. We didn't share any intimacy until a few weeks in. Okay. Just want to say, Lisa, that's not slow. That's fast. Three weeks is very fast. And in those first three weeks, you're going from soul recognition on day one till three weeks. And, you know, I just want to help you see, like, you're trying to convince yourself that this was very responsible, that you waited three weeks, but really you were just like diving off a cliff. You've just attached your whole plan for life to this guy. And something that I teach people to do all the time, and hopefully you've seen it in these videos, and that's why you're writing to me, is that if you have these traumas, you may want to consider waiting for much longer. I would say never less than three months. What you want to do is get clarity about the other person's character, their life situation, their feelings about you, their intentions for a relationship. So you found out after sex with him, or you know what, you may have found out before, but you just don't, not mentioning it here. And this is so hard because we're, we've all lived in a culture and grown up in a culture that believes and acts like, oh, it's totally fine. You know, you can just sleep with people and it's just part of your destiny. And then however it turns out, you'll just sort of go your separate ways. Well, I don't know how true that is even for people who weren't traumatized. 
But I know for people who have these terrible attachment wounds and have been rejected by their parents, it can be absolutely devastating. It can just hijack your whole life, your brain, your life, your heart. And then because you have these abandonment fears, you become hostage to your own need to stay with somebody that you slept with. And so it's very clear from the outside that you didn't have adequate information to know if this guy was really that into you or wanted to be your boyfriend or husband. And that you're using ideas like karma and soul recognition and receiving messages to justify rushing in. And, you know, this is just me here. It's Anna. It's the fairy. Like, I, like, I know you know, like, I'm not going to fall for that. I don't think it's magic. I think it's sexual attraction. And a person with CPTSD just kind of like putting them whole, their whole selves into a relationship without stopping first to get verification that this is what is going to work for them. I'm not hearing that you have any clarity at all about what does work for you and what you need. And so you're very, I, there's just like a hundred points here where you're kind of crap fitting, you're fitting yourself to whatever you got and then putting like magical dust all over it to go, but see, it's so meaningful. And I'm just going to sort of take that off. I'm going to take it off and just keep trying to show you what is, what is, not what's magical about things. I do agree life is magical sometimes, but if you're just sitting there feeling this miserable, that wasn't magic. That was PTSD. Okay. You, go, you say, then we had sex and all my emotions, wounds, attachments, fears hit me like a train. That's right. You sound like just about everybody with an attachment wound. So that's why I recommend people be so careful with crossing that line into sex because it will. Your wounds are going to come up and hit you like a train. And if you are in a relationship that's really established, someone's already said, I love you. I'm with you. I want to be with you. I'm going to stick around. And those wounds come up and they can kind of hang in there with you and help you with it. Great. So what I heard you say instead is you say the first few times this happened, like your wounds came up around sex a few times. Like I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be like that. All right. That's such a, that's, that's your soul screaming and saying, you've thrown me into this situation that is not sustainable and I'm not supported emotionally for being out on this ledge that you've walked me out onto. That's why you're crying. That's what I keep hearing. Like you're invalidating yourself. You're invalidating your own experience of what's happening. The reason you're having pain isn't because you're not spiritual enough. The reason you're having pain is because you're a real person. You're a real woman who wants to be loved, you know, who doesn't want to be just like used in some casual sex way. And then is supposed to go off and pretend like it never happened. Like who is designed for that? People who do that well, it's usually not because they're healthy. Okay. Just saying, and people will argue out there and you can argue, but this video is not for those people. This is for the people who get hurt, who get hurt by casual sex. Okay. So then you say the first few times it happened, he held a really good space for me, like almost too good. Okay. What do you even mean by holding a good space for you? I guess, I think what you mean is like, he didn't run away. He kind of helped you like process your feelings, but I just want to point out like, that's not good because what he wasn't was the man who loved you and wants to be with you. So holding a space for you is some kind of euphemism for, you know, was a buddy for you and didn't run away at first. Eventually you say his walls went up, you know, he just didn't want to deal with this at all. He didn't want you being dependent on him. He wanted casual sex. He wanted casual sex. And that's, you know, pretty common people out there. That's what they do. That's fine for them. 
But that's not what you wanted. That's what you felt like you had to go along with. And I think that you couldn't cope with that. And so you were putting all this like karma belief on it. This, here's where you say something. This is, this is like a, for me, like when I hear this, that's like a red light flashing from, from right out of your mind. You say, it felt so good. I wanted to cling to feeling like I had the support I'd been yearning for. You wanted to cling to it, but you didn't actually have it. That wasn't the support you were yearning for. It was somebody who just, you know, had sex with you and stayed friendly for a few times, you know? That's not the support you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who's like really with you. Like, believe me, that pain of abandonment is a lot less when what's built into the relationship is that there isn't abandonment, there's commitment. So if you can wait until after some kind of commitment and be clear about the level of, I mean, clear about the level, don't crap fit. Be very ambitious about how much commitment you want before this is going to feel okay. Because if you ever want to get out of this trap, you got to stop hurting yourself. Because every time you hurt yourself, it's not only that you don't, you don't get what you want, but you get set back. You get set back. You get worn down, ground down a little bit. Your whole energy gets kind of damaged by it. So you don't want this to happen. You got to be very careful with your precious self here. And you'd be surprised how much better it can go when you treating yourself with that self-respect is there for somebody to fall in love with. They're a lot more likely to fall in love with somebody who doesn't just like move their boundaries wherever required to make the thing go. All right. That's, it's hard to love and respect somebody like that. And that's a hard thing to face, but I, that is almost always in play when this kind of dynamic is happening. Okay. So then you say, it helped me heal some of my father wounds so beautifully. And I'm just going to say, I'm not hearing that at all. It sounds like it helped bring up your father wounds and make them hurt you all over again. That's not healing. You know, you never say here that this is what he's telling you. If he told you this and you believed him, I'm just going to tell you he's manipulative and selfish. But you're not telling me he's saying that. Like, I think he's just like, hey, let's have casual sex. You know, no expectations, okay? Like that would be really common out there. And it's you who's telling yourself, this is actually a healing. I'm getting destroyed, but it's actually a healing. And this is the thing you're telling yourself. All right. I know this is going to be hard to hear, Elisa, but from the outside, it's just like, this doesn't sound healing at all. It sounds damaging. You say this scared him because he doesn't want me to be dependent on him in any way. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want you. It's not that it scares him. I don't think scared is the word. That's a little bit like somebody is scared when they want intimacy, but it's hard to go that fast. He doesn't want it. So he's, he's put off. He's, he's repelled by you having this, all this like emotional thing on him as if he's your dad, as if he's your husband or boyfriend, you know, and he's not. So that started getting weird for him. The ca his plan for casual sex wasn't working out. So what did he do? His walls went up quickly. He pulled back. And then you say, which only triggered my anxious attachment to reveal itself any, even more. So now you're kind of like pathologizing natural reactions that you, of course, have because for you it was love, for you it was wanting to be with somebody, and you jump the gun and you just had sex with somebody who didn't feel that way about you. So it's not that you're just having a PTSD reaction, you're just having a natural reaction to the fact that you're, you're just kind of walked into this situation that was totally hurtful to you. You say, we were able to work through it enough to maintain connection and we parted ways deciding we would stay in a long distance relationship until we reunited in the place that we would start community together. While apart, I was the only one that initiated any contact. Okay, telltale sign. You know, there's a book called He's Just Not That Into You and it hurts, but this is when somebody doesn't contact you and you're doing it all, he's just not that into you. And 
probably if he's like most men being chased by you, you contacting him all the time, trying to imbue this with all this meaning, it probably made him pull away even harder. It's uncomfortable, you know? And when you talked, if he would cut it short, like he wasn't fully present or interested, not like he wasn't present or interested. I think he was uncomfortable and like he always had something better to be doing. He said he just wasn't great at long distance. And that sounds like he was trying to spare your feelings. And that's what people do sometimes instead of saying, look, I just don't feel this way about you. You know, I'm not into it. They'll just say, look, I'm just not great at this. They'll see if they can sort of kick the can down the road. And then you said, when I would express my concerns, it would only push him further away. Yep. I broke up with him a few times because it was too difficult for me to bear, although breaking up with him didn't actually ease my longing and heartache. It made it worse. So something in you knew you needed to go, but by then you were sort of hooked. And I, we all know what that's like. It's such a horrible place to be, and I'm so sorry. So fast forward a year later, and we're reunited. Him and I and a few other friends were given land. And this whole experience was so divinely guided. Dreams coming true. I get to live in a beautiful fairy jungle, jungle with my soul family. <laughs> the only problem, I'm still infatuated with him and he only wants to be friends because in his words, he's not ready for a relationship. So I'm not ready for a relationship is almost never what, you know, that's like a, um, it's almost like a meme or a cliche. That's what somebody says when they don't want to hurt your feelings, but they don't want a relationship with you. But you already knew that. He doesn't, he just doesn't feel that way about you. And some people, they can have sex quite happily with somebody they don't want to be with. And some of us cannot do that. I'm like that. You're like that. We're not compatible with people like him. Just not compatible. Okay. Seems like it. And that traumatic childhood can make us think like, I should be able to fit myself to this. But the sign that you can't actually fit yourself to this is the way you have to keep putting magic fairy dust on everything to make it seem like it's actually meaningful and actually spiritual and actually destined. And that is the classic sign of limerence, all right? The only problem, I'm still infatuated with him and he only wants to be friends because he's not ready for a relationship. We're living together, sleeping in the same room, basically together 24-7, but with no intimacy, verbal reassurance, validation, or deep connection. And there you are, like everything in your being is like trying to suck that out of him. So I don't call that a soul family. I call that a soul prison. Your, pr your soul is in prison. Your soul is dying. You're not getting what you need. And you've already like, you kind of like fixed your, your attachment is on this thing that's like a stone. It's not giving it to you. So then you say, I started experiencing CPTSD flashbacks and that's what's going to happen, you know, when we're acting out of that rejected crap fit thing and having intense emotional pain. That's right. Cause that's very painful. What's happening. My expression of that pushed him away energetically, thicker walls, and you spiraled into your toxic avoidant and anxious dynamic. So I think you're a little bit magicalizing that. Well, it sounds harsh, but you're not in a relationship with him. So when it's like this avoidant dynamic, he's not avoidant. He just doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. So that I just want to help you like just get real about that. The cure for limerence is actually to like just come out into the light of day and go, oh, I'm totally feeling this way about somebody who really doesn't want me to do that. It's making him uncomfortable. It's making everybody else uncomfortable. And then you said, he doesn't feel inclined to do the work to meet me in the middle because we're not in a romantic partnership. I hear in your language here, and I, I notice this a lot in people who are limerent, there's like this 
extra effort around the language to soften it and make it sound beautiful and special. He doesn't want to do the work. He just wants you to stop, it sounds like. He just doesn't want to deal with it. So you you put that very nicely. He's not inclined to do the work. and uh, But I want you to just look at what it is. He, he just doesn't want to do it. This is getting weird for him. Okay. The rest of the farm family started to see my big emotional outbursts and I became draining for them. Draining in quotes. So everyone is setting boundaries. Yeah, so oh, I know. I know that feeling when you become that girl. My hurt inner child receives this personally as exclusion and rejection. All right, I'm going to ask you. I know inner child is meaningful to some people, but I'm going to ask you to not punt your feelings off onto an imaginary being called an inner child and just say, I am feeling like this is, I'm taking this personally. Just say, I, I am taking this personally. I can't help it. And you know what? I know what it means when we say, don't take it personally. It's just how somebody else feels. But you know what? It is personal. It is you who feels this way and he doesn't feel the same way. And really in a way, there's nothing more personal. And what's important to face is that doesn't mean that's who you are. That doesn't define who you are, but that defines this painful experience for you that you're stuck in. And it's one you've been in before. So feeling so similar to being excluded by my siblings growing up, uh-huh. I continue to be triggered, explode, feel guilt, shame, apologize, and plead for understanding. I just want to say that part of you that explodes, that's like the one honest expression that comes out of this. I think you've been exploding the whole time, but you're suppressing it with all this like, you know, language and belief system. It's like, but it's really karma, but he's healing me, but blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we received a message about this. All of that, that's like, that's a layer put on to make it feel like it's okay. But actually this makes you angry. You're in, a, you're in a terrible situation that's painful that you gave yourself to this guy and he doesn't want the gift you gave. It feels terrible. It's okay. It's totally survivable. You can get out of this. Many people have done it. Practically everybody. I continue to be triggered, explode, feel guilt, shame, apologize, plead for understanding. They don't seem to really understand. They just feel exhausted, and so do I. Yeah, because with that layer of trauma underneath it, when we do this, we're being irrational. We're being irrational. It just doesn't make sense. Like what a person who doesn't have trauma does is they, they sort of go through a period of sadness and then they adjust. They either leave the farm or they forget about the guy. They just get over it because they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. you know, that wasn't real. Okay. Some people, I think, can get over having slept with somebody a few times, you know, and, and have a friendship. But I think it's actually pretty rare if there's actual romantic feelings there. I tell everybody, like, don't hang out with exes. If anybody has romantic feelings, it's always a recipe for pain. And if it's, it's going to hurt you, and when he gets together with somebody he wants to be with, it's going to hurt that woman. And so I decided to take space, and here we are. I've been gone for about a week now. I'm still experiencing anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. I think you're experiencing abandonment, Melange, too. So we can give that to ourselves by stepping out of a situation where we were attached. But it's okay. This feeling will pass. Um, it's feeling toward the whole family and you feel left out and you really want to be, you want to live there and reach harmony because it feels so much like home, your tribe and where you're supposed to be. And this is sad because this is very jeopardized right now. If I had to put money on it, I would say there's a 10% chance you're going to be able to find harmony there and be at peace with this guy there. It's not a very good chance. I don't think there's a lot of peace for you there. I think it might be worth a try because it just, it's something you always wanted, but... 
I would encourage you to take at least a few months. Take some time to absorb the reality of what has happened, of what really is. Have an honest conversation with the farm and with him about what's really going on and just say, I'm sorry, I'm romantically obsessed. I need a few months to go cool out. I want to come back. I really want this to work. And I'm going to go get this out of my mind. It might be worth a try for this incredible thing that you wanted. But if if there wasn't this incredible thing with land, and I, it sounds like something you would totally lose if you walked away, I would just say, cut all contact now. No good comes from sticking around in a limerent relationship. It is soul draining and soul killing. And it will block you from ever finding real love. And it will keep that wound agitated all the time. Like you need a certain amount of peace. Sometimes you need to get all effed up about something that happens to be prompted into healing. But then you need a peaceful place to do it. You need to not constantly have the thing agitated. So what's cool, you know, some, some, some people who write in, they're dealing with somebody who wants to keep stirring up the flames and keep it going. I'm not hearing that. You're not describing that. He's just trying to go on with his life after a casual relationship. So, yeah. So he does the best he can. He offers support. He feels what he can provide. And it doesn't seem to be good enough for me because I always want more. Yeah. And that's frustrating for him. Yes. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where somebody's always sad and anxious because how you feel about them isn't what they hoped, but it's really hard to be around. And if you've been in that situation, you know, it's not because the person's a bad person. It just happens sometimes. And traumatized people just, it's really hard for, for us to right the ship sometimes to sort of bring, a, bring ourselves back from that limerent state. Okay. I know I need to release attachment and expectations of him. You say that in a little bit like a Buddhist way, like it's a like it's a high act or something like you would do for anything. But I think what you need is to get over the man. You need to wash him out of your hair. This isn't really a spiritual thing. It's a practical matter, like not be around his things, his face, his voice, his smell, his stuff, to have no hope. You want to like, uh, like abandon all hope, ye who live here. There can't be any hope. And um, get into acceptance. But I'm, and I'm not sure how not to take this personally and stop feeling so sensitive around him. Yeah, it's just got, you know, you know, when limerence gets in, when we don't have something meaningful in our lives, when we don't have love and connection and meaning in what we're doing. And so when you take a sabbatical, if you follow my suggestion, it's time for you to cultivate your life, your meaning, your friendships, the things you love, the beauty, the animals, the, the, the friends the experiences that make you happy because you fulfilled. It's a lot harder to knock you out of that space into limerence, which is where we totally leave ourselves. And it's just like, everything is about this other person and whether they gave us a sign or some energy or something. It's a false God. It just can't do it for you. It just can't. For people who were traumatized as kids, real mutual love can be hard to find and hard to appreciate when you actually have it joy in your life is always there. And this is the little crack in reality where limerence gets in. Limerence is obsession or infatuation with someone you can't have. And it's more than a crush. It's an addictive escape thought that you go to and that you might be using to not deal with the loneliness and lack of joy and purpose in your life. You need love and joy and purpose. And when you can't get them, or you can't feel what's right in front of you, limerence drives you to try to fill yourself up with the fantasy of someone. And it feels sweet and exciting at first, 
but it always turns to misery. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Sarika, and she writes, Hi, Anna. I've been following your channel for some time, and it's helped me a lot. My story. I'm a homemaker, 43, and this year my husband's been on bed rest for nearly two months due to sciatica pain and a slip disc. We hired a therapist and chiropractor for his treatment who would visit him every day at home. He came for nearly two months, treated him completely, and now my husband attends his yoga classes. I seem to have formed a very close bond with the therapist in these two months, feel so grateful for his help as I was getting burned out with the constant caretaking. In my times of extreme distress, it was so refreshing to have someone come every day, do his work diligently, try to cheer us up with his great sense of humor. No point in my life as I'm also recovering from chronic back pain. After a month or so, I was very much attracted to him, though I knew it was inappropriate. I'm married, and he is married with kids, and though he is very polite, charming, and respectful, he has very clear boundaries and never crossed the line. My problem is how do I teach myself to stop thinking about him and move on with my life? He suggested I too join his classes for my back pain, but I haven't because I would be more interested in talking to him, knowing more about him than learning yoga. My husband is a nice and kind man and going to him for his obesity treatment. He is 270 pounds and it would take three to four years to lose 60 to 90 of those pounds. Supportive wife and fully supporting him on this journey, but of late, we seem to have some distance between us because of work pressure and health issues. Sometimes I feel very lonely going through all this alone. My back pain for the last four to five years, I've come in and out of depression many times. I feel so tempted to join his classes so that I can see him again. His positive aura and lighthearted nature seem to distract me from my current state and make me happier. I know I won't join because it's not the right thing to do, but I think of him every day and bless him for helping my husband recover. I wish we could be friends, but there's no scope for that, as he only comes in my locality to work, and the only relation we can have is a professional one with a therapist. I know I can't have him, but still long to meet him. About my childhood, I did not lack in any material needs, except for the fact that my parents were narcissistic and were highly ambitious and following their respective careers, progressing very well, but no time for the kids. I was neglected and left to tend to my emotional needs alone. Bunch of circles there. Uh, to date, I look for my happiness in other people. I don't know how to be happy myself. The journey ahead has become very lonely. How do I bring myself out of this and forget this man who can offer me nothing except his professional services? I know this and still I'm drawn to him. It's affecting my well-being. Please help. Sarika. Okay, Sarika, I gotcha. I think we can help you. So I went through and I circled some things I want to come back to. All right. Your husband's been on bed rest for nearly two months um, because of sciatica and slip disc. And I, I just, I had a friend go through this recently and oh my gosh, it was so hard for the family because he couldn't work and he, he could, he needed so much help and he couldn't contribute to anything around the house. And his mind was very preoccupied with the pain that he was in and what was going to happen and, and why couldn't the doctor find out what was wrong? You know, just the things that people go through when they have something like that. And he tried everything and it did. It took a couple of months. 
and it eventually cleared up. And here's your husband who has therapist coming to visit um, throughout the week. And now he's gone off to yoga classes. So I'm very happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear your husband is able to get up and be mobile and go and do yoga. That's a hap that's happy news. And then I hear you about this other part that, well, you told me at the end here that you were neglected and you were left to tend your own emotional needs. And somehow I suspect that's what's going on right now, that your emotional needs have gone off by the wayside. Maybe they tend to be on focus for your husband and for you most of the time, but now with him on bed rest, I bet you weren't getting what you needed. And so the the need and the hunger for that became greater. Limerent, and I think it is limerent. Um, it's, you know, a, obsession or infatuation with someone you can't have. And that's exactly what this is. And you're thinking about him and, you know, perhaps looking for signs. I love your realism that you're just clear. He's not giving you signs. He doesn't cross the line. It wouldn't be good to go see him. But let's look at the limerence. You know, the, your limerence is a sign that you are lacking in joy and meaning and connection in your life. And I don't mean to trivialize it, but limerence only happens for people whose lives are kind of empty at the time. And there's also a genetic component, it turns out. I was very interested to read that. You know, it's almost always childhood neglect is a, is a precursor. So you put those three together and you have a perfect storm. It's very difficult. So... And then he comes in, he's like this helper, he makes everything cheerful, he puts things back in order, and the despair and disconnection and burden of, of what you're going through right now, he comes in and makes it lighter for you. How wonderful that must be. How could, I, I get it, like how could you help but fall for somebody who brings that goodness, sort of like a, a Mary Poppins man, <laughs> you know, who just comes in and puts it together. You remember Mary Poppins? Those kids were neglected, the kids were working all the time. And she came in and paid close attention and brought. And I would just say, I think that's sort of the energy that you're in need of right now. So the heart will attach to whoever presents themselves sometimes. And this is not somebody who can, who can really give it to you. I really zeroed in here how you said how you're supportive and you're supporting him on his journey. But there's distance now because of work pressure and health issues. And... Maybe it's there, but you didn't mention it. But does your husband support you? Is he able to support you and care about what you need and care about when you feel lonely and when you feel a little lost or you're not finding meaning in your life? Is he able to do that? I hope so. I hope so. But I totally understand that when he's laid up with the, with the injury, he couldn't do it. I just want to put something out there about back pain. I don't know. I don't know what's up with your back pain. But there's a book that really, really helped me with mine. Um, and it's called Heal Your Back Pain, and it's by Dr. Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. And the premise there is that if you have chronic pain for more than six weeks, and doctors and x-rays or scans can't really find a source for it, maybe they have, I don't know. You didn't say whether they have, but if it's gone on for this long and you haven't ended up with surgery or anything, perhaps, perhaps it's one of those things, mysterious origin, but it just goes on and on. So the Sarno book, and it, he has more books that go on to explain, you can sometimes apply this to all kinds of things like chronic headaches and um, wounds that won't heal and certain chronic health problems, that it's anger and anxiety. There's anger and anxiety. And I first learned about this book when I worked in an office um, with a group of people. I had known them for years, and we all would have staff meetings every week, and they always used to have to stand during the staff meeting because their backs hurt. 
And one day they came in and they said, did you notice we're both sitting at the table? <laughs> and we were like, oh yeah, you're sitting at the table. What's up with that? And they said, well, we read this book and we didn't want to admit it to you, but first one of the people read it, then they passed it quietly to the other person. And both of them within three days recovered from their pain and it was better. And I read the book, I was very interested and I had overcome my own back pain by the time I read the book, but I took note of it because I had a lot of problems with asthma and migraines. And I tend to get migraines when, my, when I have a lot of anxiety and anger. When I feel overwhelmed, I will tend to get migraines very easily. And when I started using this idea and the idea of the book, I really encourage you to read it in case this applies to you. That you don't even have to solve what's making you angry or anxious. You merely have to acknowledge, I have a lot of anger and anxiety. I don't want to take it out on my body anymore. So I tried it. I tried it. I had a chronic knee condition. They told me I'd never run and it just went away. I got up and I ran. I have other things that I couldn't make go away. Some things there's an actual injury there and that, I don't know, that may be the case with your back. But if, if they can't find the origin, sometimes it's this. And it can be hard to admit sometimes. But I love that you don't have to actually know, you know, why do I have this? What am I going to do about it? You don't have to know. You just have to acknowledge it's there and then relief comes. So I took this book very seriously when after I had had a series of surgeries, 14 major surgeries, and they kept not working. I will, I will talk about it someday on this channel, but I had a serious medical complication from the first surgery, and it led to more and more very complicated, complex, painful surgeries. And they kept saying, we just don't know why you can't heal. And I, among the things I did to try to heal that, because they kept saying, you know, for whatever reason, we fix, we stitch everything together and blood flow won't go there. Well, now we know that's a trauma thing, Sarika, is not, you know, your body not being able to perform the regular healing functions of moving fluids and cells and blood and, um, you know, antibodies and things where they are needed. That trauma, the dysregulation of past trauma can interfere with that process. And so I now would say, I think that's what happened. I was somaticizing a great deal of anger and stress around my divorce of my first marriage and the fear I had about how I was gonna somehow support two, two little kids all by myself and make it in the world. I'm here to say I made it, I made it. And it ended up okay, but you can imagine how scared I was and angry. I hadn't acknowledged it. And I did a number of things at that time. I will talk about it sometime. But my healing finally took place after two years after the last surgery. And they said, there's no, nothing more we can do. You're stuck like this. And I had to have all these like, you know, medical devices and things to cope and to survive. And all of that is gone now. I healed spontaneously when I really dealt with all the anger and shame and fear that I had. And so this is always possible can't cure what the underlying condition is, it still can make life so much happier. And I encourage you to do that. I think you need happiness, Sarika. This, this just sounds like a hard grind right now. I agree with you. I don't think it's a good idea to go to his class. I think you should go to a class though. And if you live in an area where there's a different yoga class to go where he is not, and to go be with other people who are doing something positive and healing in their lives, like doing yoga, whether it's like dance or a book club or, you know, some sort of a knitting club or a quilting club or something where people get together and they do something that gives them joy together. I really encourage you to do that. 
it's a nice thing to do and it will bring that joy into your life that then gives a little lift to your capacity to be present for your husband, to be aware of how you feel, to take the next step towards bringing joy and purpose and meaning into your life. So that, my friend, is how to get out of a limerent relationship. There's, I wish there, you know, I think we all wish there was some answer. It's like, there's some magic words you say and then they understand and the whole relationship shifts, but it doesn't. It just, it is what it is. I hate that phrase, but I just mean that it, it is this way. You have these feelings for somebody you can't have. And those feelings are unlikely to go away so long as he's in your life and you still won't be able to have him. And that's a very sad, soul-sucking reality to be living in. So I encourage you to do what you can to cut it off and um, honor what it is it brought up in you. Limerence brings up a vision of who you might be and go for that. And I know that's like not comforting when you're losing that, when it feels like everything that made your life come into color, you know, just went away. I know it's sad, there's grieving to do, but there is joy to be had, the real joy, the sustainable joy that you give yourself instead of trying to get that happiness from other people. Other people do bring happiness, but it's impossible for them to make you happy when you don't have that core happiness. And that's, you know, that trauma-shaped hole that's in your heart there. And you can work on that. Obsessive love for someone you can't have is a kind of hell. And when you're limerent, you idealize this other person and you go from just elation and a fantasy of how it might be with them to just utter loss and emptiness. Every time reality comes and hits you, you can't have them and it hits you like a bucket of water, cold water. There's this great possibility and then there's this total emptiness. But there's one aspect of limerence that's really worth paying attention to, and it's that version of yourself and what is possible for you that you glimpse during those moments when you believe even just a little that the great love you crave is just about to be returned any minute now. It's a fragment of contact with the person you really are, the person you want to be, the person that wants to be expressed in this world. And it's a version of yourself that's blocked from coming into being because instead of living your life and taking action and building a good relationship with somebody available and all that creativity and fulfillment that you know you're meant for, it's just funneling just out into space, out into nothing. It's fantasy. So it's tragic when this happens, but I want to bring your attention back to that version of yourself that is revealed to you when you're limerent. So my letter today is from someone I'll call James. And James writes, Hi, Fairy. I'm hoping you can expand on something you said in passing in your last video. In talking about someone experiencing limerence, you said, when things are in transition like that, it's a big change and you're vulnerable. And you go, I don't know, maybe I could be more than I ever imagined I could be. That really struck me because of an experience I had last year. I fell into what I now recognize was a limerent episode. And for a hot second there, it looked like I might actually get to be with my limerent object. That's the person you get all limerent on. And limerence, for anybody who's new to the topic, limerence is a obsessive love and infatuation, but it's by definition, you can't really have the person. It can't be. And one of the big signs of it is that you're looking for signs all the time, like in sidewalks and clouds, you know, anywhere you can, that maybe they feel the same way. That's how desperate it becomes to get reciprocation that you don't get. All right. 
So this happened with a limerent object, a, a person you were limerent on last year. This person seemed so amazing to me and that the idea that she'd actually want to be with me helped me feel like I must be worthwhile. It gave me a confidence I'd never had before. And I really felt like I was embodying the best possible version of myself. When it then didn't happen, I was crushed. And I feel like I've lost access to that better version of myself. Mm -hmm. How can I get back to that place in a way that isn't dependent on someone else's behavior? Oh, that's such a good question, James. I just pulled, you know, such a short letter. And um, I thought, oh, this isn't really a letter. What am I going to do with this? But this is such a potent letter. And it's, it's full of like the real question about limerence is the thing that we see, that great joy um, that gets lit up. And um, there's a, in, in people who write about limerence, there's a word they use, glimmer. And glimmer is that moment when you first recognize there's this like, between you with somebody. It's a special thing. And I really don't know if, for people who don't get limerent, like when they get a crush on somebody, would it count as glimmer? I don't know. But when you, when, when limerence begins, it's, there's this, you know, there's this flash of recognition and it just kind of like gets you right in the center of your brain. And it feels like it goes all the way up to heaven and there's a rightness to the whole thing. And it's as if everything just sort of falls into place. But one of the things that helps a person who's been limerent more than once, like the fact if you've done it again and again, you start to get past the idea that anyone, it was like all about this one person. For some people, it is all about one person. And I don't rule out the possibility that there is a great, great and meaningful connection between somebody you're limerent on and you, and that it can't be for whatever reason. But there, you know, that does happen. But a lot of times limerence is happening in a total absence of that kind of thing. It's sort of getting conjured up from within. But I know what you're talking about, that version of yourself. And in your case, it was quite literal, like somebody was very accomplished or you saw them as sort of up on a pedestal, or maybe you imagined that there was a pedestal. But let's say that, um, you know, somebody uh, started hanging out with a movie star and the movie star sort of liked them for a minute, but not, it didn't really go anywhere. You know, there might be that like, wow, if I could be the partner to the movie star, you know, I'd be going to the Oscars this year and I would meet all the other movie stars and there would be all this money and freedom and we'd travel. So there would be some basis for imagining sort of life's big doors opening up. But a lot of limerence isn't really like that. It's not, there aren't actual doors opening up. It's more like doors of um, awareness and perception that open up in the company of another person. They get you, you get them. And two people who, who really like get each other and understand each other is a rare thing. And you might only find it a few times in your life. And it is in fact quite sad if, if one of the people you have that with, you know, decides they don't want to be with you and they're going to be with somebody else and therefore you can't really have them in your life. And so of all the three people you were ever going to have that with, one of them has just left your life. It is sad. I just want to first say like, it's really sad. You get to be sad. You get to feel like a loss. I do think there are signs that a relationship can become like an actual marriage, an actual partnership of two people meant to be together for life. And one of those signs is that they can be with you and will be with you. That's one of the signs. Like anybody who won't do that or can't do that, they actually are by definition not the one. They're just not. 
And I always found that comforting. It's like, well, if it's not happening, there it is, you know, and I, I, I'm a God person. I believe in God. And I used to be reminded by my friend, if God wants you together, there's nothing you can do to mess it up. If God doesn't want you together, there's nothing you can do to make it happen. And I know a lot of people here don't believe in that, but we all believe in something. And that's been my guidepost. And I've, I've found a lot of resonance in it, that relationships that feel like, oh God, this is the one, this is like the only way that I ever come into Technicolor. This is the only way that I can ever really access my creativity, like a muse relationship, I would say. Um, I've known that experience. And uh, and I, I, when people would just be like, you just have to get that inside your own self. It's like, it's not there. There's just not that kind of thing inside of me. And I have reverence for that. There's a different chemistry with each person. Okay. And there are some things you will just never find exactly in another person or in yourself. The way that we come together with each person who we become close to is unique and potentially quite special, even if they're not the one. So I will grant you that. But if they cannot be with you, then the job at hand <laughs> is to make the best possible, happy, most useful, joyful life full of good things, bearing fruit in the world. You know, you want to do that to the best of your ability. It is tr That's the tragedy is that you would ever give up on that and not do it and just be really attached to this one idea that has died. It has died. And so all of this energy goes out into space. It goes into the black hole you know, when it actually could be turned into, you know, the great American novel, or you'd build a house or you'd have some children or, you know, good things would come from a relationship with somebody who would be very happy to be with you. So when you've just come out of a limerent state, other relationships will feel quite dull and pointless and, you know, muggles, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> it feels like that. And that means you need a period of detox because that's actually an illusion. You know, there's not like one incredible person in the world and everybody else is just lame. That's, that's the limerence talking, you know, it's kind of an interaction of, of, of trauma and, and some, there's a genetic component evidently, like some people have the gene and they're a little prone to it and others are not. So a genetic thing interacting with trauma and attachment wounds so that an ordinary crush just turns into like this thing that grips your mind, you know, for a, they say for an average of few years, but it can go on for decades for your whole life, right? So it's very sad if you can't recover that energy from that dream that you're having. And it's a dream. It's a dream because it's not happening. It's just like, it's a matter of straightforward definitions. And this is where in the service of limerence, we have so many industries that pop up to keep giving people food to feed the dream. Like, um, you know, occult card readings, astrology, um, twin flame beliefs. And so for, for people who believe in that stuff, fine, but just ask yourself, are you using this as a form of magical thinking to just keep, you know, holding out hope for this thing that's never coming? And here's the thing. If somebody loves you and they're meant to be with you, they're going to come back so you can afford to take your mind off of it. I'm just saying, you know, these are some of the thoughts that help me get over it. You know, just take your mind off of it. And I think that's one of the best cures is um, treat it like something that you need to detox from. And just like you would have to do if you had a problem with cocaine, like stop thinking about it. Stop hanging out with people who do it themselves. Stop hanging out with people who have sort of enabled you with that. 
it's actually quite annoying for other people, for anybody to be kind of caught up in fantasy. And it's a way that you distance from other people. So other people in your life and your relationship with them will begin to spring up and grow wonderful when you can begin to show up, you know, with your whole spirit for that. It's a weird thing. It's like a soul death where we sort of evacuate. We evacuate this plane. We go into this other plane so we can just live there and not deal with this because it's just too painful. But that's not who, where you want to stay for long, right? So we have greatness in us. We have greatness in us. And some of the greatest people you might ever admire, just notice that some of the people they love died early on in their lives. And, uh, or they lost, or they, you know, or people left them, and their greatness continued. Be one of the people whose greatness travels with them through various interactions with people and through the decades of your life. Be one of those. There is nothing sadder than when our lives just, just fizzle out over a fantasy. We cannot be happy unless we are using the power, the strength, the gifts that we're endowed with to bring something more wonderful into the world. That's what everybody is meant for. And until we're doing that, we're not happy. There's no real lasting happiness until we do that. Now, so many of us are not in a place where we can do that. Why? Addictions, poverty, uh, I was going to say incarceration, but actually some people, their greatness does show up in prison. They're able to bring great, great gifts to others in prison. And we have heroes in our culture, heroes and heroines who, who have accomplished great things in the service of people and um, of living things while they were under terribly oppressive circumstances. And I do not wish oppression on anybody. I wish freedom on everybody. Freedom literacy, food, safety, shelter. These are conditions that people need for their, for their gifts to come to, to fruition. So we need those things. And when we've achieved those things, and this is my basic, this is my basic belief system here. I've been able to find my gifts and start using them. I've been able to move on to phase two, which is to create conditions where other people can use theirs. And I'm doing that right now by talking to you, James. I'm trying to create conditions where you can step up out of the dream that, that, that you only can be you or bring your gifts to bear in this world if you have this person with you who is not there, who won't be with you. I need your gifts. We need your gifts. The world has giant holes in it where people have been unable to do that. So. First, we bring ourselves to fruition, and then we create conditions where everybody can. And it won't be everybody at once, but one at a time. If you can change one person's life and create conditions for them, I say this sometimes. If you think of a child who's talented at painting, right? If they don't ever have paint, they're going to have a hard time developing that gift. Now, a gift is something that you're endowed with for the benefit of other people. You probably have dozens of talents. You know, you're maybe really good with, you know, car repairs and you know how to write really well and you're um, very good at calming down angry people. These are talents, right? But the gift is the thing that you hear over and over again. People just come back to you and say, that thing you did, it really helped me. It really helped me. So that's what guided me out of former careers and former, you know, directions in my life day by day through the practices I use to keep freeing myself from troubling, you know, the fearful, resentful thoughts that my life is no good, that I'm no good, that people are against me. Just day by day, I get free of those using my daily practice. It's down in the description section below. I'm always telling everybody that. 
you get free of that day by day and a new idea comes in, a new inspiration comes in. And I actively, you know, I actively seek out, you know, what is, what is meant for me? What is my next right move? Where can I get the power to actually act on what I know is the right thing? And over the 28 years I've been doing this practice, uh, I have been taken on an incredible winding road that I had no idea where it was going through careers that made no sense, that didn't have any kind of additive properties in my mind. I'd have one accomplishment here, one there. And then all of a sudden it all came together in Crappy Childhood Fairy a few years ago. And it turns out like virtually everything I've ever done in my life, you know, as a hobby, as a profession, all of it was preparation for what I'm doing right now. I'm delighted. I really had this like aching feeling like I was meant to do something, but I couldn't find it and everything felt kind of empty. And I think in that emptiness where you're not finding, where you're not finding your thing, that's where limerence comes in. It's because you never really have it. You know, they say that when people who have limerence actually get to be with the person they're limerent on, the limerence will calm down quite quickly because it is, it's, you know, it can only stay like up in this realm when there are no toilet seats left up and bills to pay and, you know, arguments about driving and all that stuff. That's just, you know, normal human parts of a relationship, feet of clay, right? So we're having a relationship with an ideal. And it, it's, I think it's safe to assume there are elements of spiritual hunger to the limerent relationship to the limerent longing. There's a spiritual hunger there that doesn't tend to be met, you know, were you to actually end up with that person? Or I don't know, people, you guys can all comment. Some people will say, no, I was limerent on somebody and finally we're together and it's great. It's everything I hoped it would be. And I'm really happy for you and I can see how that's possible. But um, for everybody else, <laughs> life, that life is still totally possible and it doesn't depend on one other person. I was very resistant to that advice. Um, when I was suffering with it, because people say that, but it also, it has like these, it has similarities to when people are sort of giving platitudes about how you don't ever need another person. You just need to love yourself. And I don't believe that. I have a video about that. I'll, I'll throw that up next actually about, um, the self-love myth. Um, I don't believe that. Um, so there are some things that I think are quite hard to uh, manufacture for yourself. And it has been a spiritual journey for me to be able to find fulfillment. And as a more fulfilled and more happy person, guess what? More meaningful relationships show up in my life. But you know, I'm not gonna lie, I'm a person with CPTSD, so I struggle with connections with other people sometimes. That's how I know how this works. And then the, what I've used to overcome that is what I teach in all the courses I do, in the coaching, like just school of hard knocks, suffered so many times through these dynamics that CPTSD brings, including limerence, and then came through on the other side to something more fulfilled, more happy, more workable. And it's wonderful. You know, I just can't say enough about persisting with your healing so that you can move beyond loving ghosts, you know, loving memories, um, and instead loving a human being in your life. Um, or working your way towards that, preparing for it, whether it's a, you know, a special partner or whether it's a bunch of people in your life. I think it's what virtually everyone craves. And I, 
you know, I, I acknowledge a lot of people are so traumatized. They cannot do that right now. It feels impossible. So they, everybody does what they can. I have this course called Connection Bootcamp and I teach people a little at a time. Every day you start taking actions. And I brought this course out just as like the pandemic was ending. Um, I don't know, a year and a half ago, it wasn't really over, but people were starting to hang out with each other again. And we were all rusty. I don't know about you. I kind of went to seed. I would hang out with people. I couldn't really like hold the thread of conversation. I would just get way too enthusiastic about stuff. I wasn't able to sort of like match the energy of people. I was like, blah. And now I, now I feel a little more like I can do it. So I wish you well, James. I thank you for bringing this up. I'm really interested to see what the comments bring up about, you know, the beautiful aspect of limerence and what it shows you, what it shows you in yourself and what it shows you about the divine. People traumatized as kids are known to have difficulty weighing the potential consequences of trauma-driven behaviors that they allow to continue in themselves. And so you might jump into an impossible relationship or stay in a bad relationship or cling to an ex who has told you clearly that they'll never feel that way that you feel, even though they're happy enough to have you on the periphery of their lives. And this is who traumatized people can so easily end up attached to in life. Like they're not quite alone, but they're unable to build the friendships or care for themselves financially or liberate that tremendous talent and ability that's inside because obsessive, clinging, infatuated love for someone who is not able or willing to be your partner, and the word for that is limerence, that kind of obsessive love consumes everything you've got. It's got your joy, it consumes your security and your future. And when you're doing this, it's likely you'll come up with a dozen rationalizations why it's just for now and you know it's not really going anywhere. And you'll tell yourself and everyone that you're actually happy with that tiny little corner of a relationship that you actually secretly want all of. You love them. You want them to give you everything, but you content yourself with just a little bit. You can't build a real life when your heart is pouring energy into a fantasy of what you wish would happen. A life can only be built on what is happening. That has to be taken into account and you build on that. And as hard as it can be to do when you have childhood PTSD, everything depends on facing the truth. That limerence is a parasite. It's sucking the life out of you. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Jane. And she writes, Dear Anna, like so many with CPTSD, I haven't had any friendships strong enough to call me out or to even understand really. And I've lost so many friendships because of my CPTSD, so many. Lately, you've been speaking about limerence and I can see how my situation was exactly that at one time, but I think things have evolved. However, I know to question my judgment that my discernment might be off a little bit. So I'm writing to ask a question about my current living situation. Here's the background. Nearly five years ago, and only a couple years after separating from my ex, I met a man and we began dating. Looking back, it was the firestorm that finally woke me up to the work I needed to do to heal. We triggered each other so hard, it was tragic. He's avoidant, I'm anxious avoidant, and while we really hit it off fast and hard, of course, right? <laughs> I'm circling it with my fairy pencil because I'm gonna read through and then I'll come back to the things I circled so we can talk a little bit more and I'll see if I can help you, Jane. Okay. We really hit it off fast and hard, of course, right? We also kept breaking up this on again, off again thing that probably traumatized me further. 
when I was already a CPTSD mess. About a year into this, my only child attempted suicide. Less than two weeks later, my boyfriend dumped me, saying we needed space. I know I was trigger a triggered toxic mess, and I own that now, and I know that a lot of his behavior wasn't cool. Either that he abandoned me in my greatest time of need. I was at the beginning stages of calling people out who were hurting me. I likely wasn't doing a great job of it. We did mend things again a few weeks later, and he apologized, admitting he couldn't handle the huge emotional toll it took, but that he shouldn't have left me hanging like that. We kept doing this, growing, learning, triggering, breaking it off. Long story short, two years ago, he said, I don't like how this relationship feels. A few months later, he told me, just friends forever, but continued to keep in touch to check up on me. I was living alone in a tiny cottage on a farm in the woods. He was living alone without much contact at all in the city, all this during the pandemic. We chatted regularly like friends do, but I know I was in limerence then based on everything you've described. I was sure he kept in touch because he still wanted me. I was a total mess over the loss of our love relationship, always looking for hope that we would mend it, always daydreaming of us getting back together, crying all the time, and so on. I realize now I placed a lot of self-worth on being wanted by someone else. Months later, I discovered the place I was at, the farm cottage, had an addicted man living there in an RV, and there was an incident that triggered some old stuff. And this was just as I was learning what triggered meant, what it meant to have my new diagnosis of PTSD. But the power of it terrified me. It shook me to the core. I called my dad in a complete dysregulated mess, and he was busy, so I called the boyfriend, my closest friend and regular confidant. My boyfriend wanted me safe out of there and offered his spare room. Just a note. My stuff is all in storage. I've been going around trying out neat places to live, like the farm, or traveling in my camper, trying to decide where to settle. And some of my things are still at his place, like my bed and dining room table chairs. His spare room, for example, the one he offered me, had my bed set up in it already because I didn't want it in the garage storage. All the rest of my household stuff is in. It was fall, winter weather was coming already, and my camper isn't winterized. I accepted his kind offer at that time, hoping we would grow close, mend our relationship, and the rest would be history. By February, five months later, I was finally waking up to the fact that he really meant it. Just friends forever. Although I was still lost in limerence, despite these facts in my face, I found a job and returned to the farm. The drug addict had moved on, and by the end of that summer last year, our friendship was still strong, long distance. My limerence was healing along with all the therapy work I was doing and continue to do. But the job was seasonal, and I hadn't been able to find a permanent place to live. He welcomed me back for the winter once again. Should I mention I had a kitten the first winter that he accepted no problem, and he fell in love with it. Because by that second winter, when I returned to the rent the spare room again, he had his own kitten, and now we were a household of four. Yes, I'm still here in that spare room, paying a very manageable rent. My kitten grown into a cat, and the two of them might be a bonded pair now. Meanwhile, there's a housing crisis, and war, and rising prices, and I haven't been able to secure my own place. Not sure I want to, to be honest. Living alone again would suck. But am I fooling myself? Am I still in limerence, staying on here like this? I mean, it's not forever. He has plans to retire soon and buy an acreage. I have plans to go traveling again this summer and look for a new place to live. 
I'm not expecting our relationship to change. I love him deeply still, but as a friend only, I swear. Is it bad for me to stay in contact with him having that history? I can't imagine not talking to him, not calling him with news of my life, not camping out on his property to help him build his homestead, not asking his advice when I found some place I'd like to acquire. Have we managed to create a valuable friendship or am I still fooling myself? I recognize our friendship has held us both back from seeking new love relationships. Best wishes, Jane. All right, Jane, I think I can help you. Here we go. Life is complicated, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> All right. You had a relationship that was limerent and now you swear you're just friends. So first of all, I'm going to be the friend who does call you out and say, if you didn't have limerence about this guy, you wouldn't have to write about it. <laughs> that's so mean, right? But I think that's the case. I think you do have limerence for him. I think you're using self-denial as a way to tolerate that you can't have somebody who you love very much. And yes, I believe you have a good friendship. Being limerent doesn't always exclude the truth of having a good friendship. I'll tell you what I think. Let's go through some of this. So you guys had a terrible trauma bond relationship, and that's not uncommon for people who are traumatized as kids. And it's interesting, two avoidant people going into trauma bond. Trauma bond is when two people break up, get back together, break up, get back together, or one person, you know, messes with the other person's mind is like, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. It sounds like it was kind of a mutual thing. So that will actually, even to somebody who didn't have trauma, that will addict someone's brain to the high of getting back together after a breakup. So you have the pain of the breakup and the abandonment, and then the high of getting back together. And sometimes it gets to be so like entrenched that you can't even feel feelings for each other without doing that. But it sounds like you guys are middle-aged, and so you know better than to you know keep it at this high fever pitch of drama. And so you're finding this kind of happy medium of being roommates together part of the year, even though it's blocking you both from having another relationship. This thing where he couldn't deal with, first of all, I'm so sorry that your only child attempted suicide. It sounds like they survived, thank goodness. And um, this whole, the years of the pandemic have been terrible for young people. And um, I'm so sad for anybody who starts to feel that badly and so glad they survived. And so of course you were very upset. And um, I think it is fair if you're sleeping with somebody and you living with them and you're with them long-term, it is fair that they should be there for you when your life has a big, big bad thing happen in it like that. And if they can't be there for you, you it's just a matter of deciding like, are you okay with that? So you say he's like a avoidant and that's what avoidance do, right? They don't like intense emotion. They hit the high road when they do that. Although a lot of them, they know that they're not supposed to do that. And so they go through the motions of sticking around. But being with an avoidant person can be a very hard and disappointing thing. Now you say you're avoidant too. So <laughs> what's interesting about that is in a way, it's a perfect relationship for two avoidants, you know? If you got to a point where you were just to say, no, I'm really clear, I, I, I can't actually deal with a real relationship and I don't want to pursue it anymore. I just want to have this roommate who I kind of adore and we have our cats and I go away every summer so it's not too much. You know, that could in a way be the perfect arrangement, but here's the thing. You're not building up a financially secure situation that from middle age into old age is going to be so important. 
And so I think that's the thing about limerent relationships is they keep you off in dreamland and you're not dealing with important practical questions like that. Like married people can help each other do that. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen, but you know, it's a real advantage for, you know, saving and growing old together. Single people who just are consciously single can focus on saving money for that and not, you said this was a seasonal job. A seasonal job is not a good job for somebody who's headed for retirement. I mean, unless there's some wealth coming your way in the future. But right now with like, um, you can't afford to even have your own place and you're living in a camper. It sounds like you're right on the edge. And I would say for a person with trauma to keep themselves on the edge like that, you're always going to be terribly dependent on relationships, whether they're miserable or not. And there's the possibility he's going to meet somebody and then it will become necessary for you to go. So I'm just, you know, I'm not really telling you what you have to do about this. Like you guys could agree to accept this, but if I were your friend, I would just be very worried about your financial security and want you to deal with that. And also that you had a support system outside of him so that you didn't rely on somebody who's avoidant and can't deal with your feelings. And if anything bad ever happens in your life, is going to just like run out the door on you and possibly get into a new relationship. So that is a strong suggestion I have for you. Support system, financial security. What's going on here, what I notice is it's, um, and I talk about this sometimes, when the child in you is controlling the adult in you, it sounds like the child in you needs to be taken care of right now. But it's not proper to have an ex do that for you. It's fraught with difficulties. It's going to activate your trauma and it's got the limerence going. And once limerent, you know, it's always like right under the surface. You might think it's not there, but it is. It's there. I think very few people ever recover from limerence. What I've heard is the one thing that can do it sometimes is actually getting together with somebody and then you're like dealing with the real thing of being with them and all the disappointments that being with a real person also contain. It's very hard to stay in this like fantasy of them, of how great it would be because you're actually in whatever it is. And something to remember, like the relationship that you have with him, that is your relationship with him. So there's, it's very easy to get attached to like a hypothetical relationship. But what is the relationship is playing out always in real time in front of us, in all the relationships we're in. You get to see, this is what it looks like. A friend of mine used to say, if you want to know about a relationship, take a trip. Just because when you take a trip, it starts to, you know, pop the bubbles of illusion about what might be and you're thrown together maybe in a car, you know, for several days and you get to experience what's that like, what, what is so annoying about them. So now you've lived with him. You guys are good friends. It just sounds like either it's that he's not in love with you or he's so avoidant that he cannot be in that kind of relationship. But the fact that he calls and stays in touch, yeah, it seems like he's happy enough to have you be on the periphery of his life. And um, that's often the case. So if you're okay with that forever, with a lot of risks that you're going to get thrown out one day, go for it. I'm being mean. I'm not, try I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to like, trying to show you the dark side of this. Um, but also to let you know there's total acceptance of this. Like it's an okay life arrangement. Many, many people don't end up in couples. Many, many people have dear friends who they really kind of stay tied to and that becomes their sort of chosen family. It's just that the limerence, the limerence could lead to a great soul emptiness for you. And I would hate for you at the end of your life, you know, when you're reviewing everything, just go, God, I wish I had actually found myself a real partner so that you could have all the joys that come with a real partner. 
and um, instead of a roommate where you have all the downsides but not the choice, <laughs> right? I think about that winter where you had to go live with him because the winter was coming in your van, you know, and you live in a snowy area far north. I don't want that to happen to you. I, there needs to be another alternative for that. So maybe what you're doing is rationalizing going to him as if there's no other place in the world, but actually you could go to a city or you could, you know, rent a room, or if you really had to go to a shelter, um, there would always be an option for that. But just please stay in touch with your options on this. If the relationship isn't what you want it to be, if it's not something that you're free to commit your whole life to, which it's not right now, certainly. And it doesn't seem like it's going to turn to that. You say, I realize now I placed a lot of worth on being wanted by someone else. You know what? I don't, I don't hear you doing that to a fault. Everybody wants to be loved by somebody else. I don't think you're doing it to a fault. I think limerence crops up when real life is just not very good. And especially when childhood wasn't very good and real life is sort of like, you know, sad and there's there's not enough friends, there's not enough money, there's not enough love. We want to escape into the fantasy of what might be. That's all it is. It's an escape into fantasy. But like all addictions, it keeps you from doing active things that make your life good. You know, developing your skills, learning to play the guitar, having a better job, making sure you have something saved to retirement, having a warm place to go in the winter just in case, you know, things don't go very well here. You talk about being a dysregulated mess. You were very hard on yourself about how upset you were and um, about when you went back and lived in the RV thing with the addict guy and you were triggered and you learned about it and you called your dad and he wasn't there and that's when you called your ex. I totally get it. You were in a vulnerable place and he was just like the only person who represents security to you, who represents like a shoulder, a hand. I get it. This is why it's sort of an unstable arrangement. But many of us have such people in our lives. That's how we get through. He offered you a spare room. All your stuff is in storage. The fact that your stuff was still in his house, you guys have been entangled this whole time, right? So that thing where you break up all the time and get back together, I don't know. It just seems like if you could find a way to make it stable and commit to it and like see each other through to the end of life, it could work. And if you were okay that it's not sex and you know, all that, it could work. I see that there's a lot here. And now the cats, and now you say the cats have a pair bond. And so that's where it's like the cat thing. Yeah, but <laughs> that's where I knew you had limerence going on. It's like the cats are pair bonded. We have to be together. <laughs> that sounds like a limerent thought. I know cats bond, but that doesn't mean you can't take your cat and go. Yeah, and the world is pretty scary right now. And who doesn't want to have a secure home where they can stay and know that they're going to be okay and somebody will help them? And what if you break your leg and, you know, you want all that? Of course you want that. And you can't imagine life without him and not talking to him and talking about news and staying on his property and helping him build his homestead. So yeah, not ask, you want to be able to ask his advice when you make big things. So I don't know, maybe you're making it work. You didn't tell me, have you completely laid your cards on the table and just say, look, I love you. And I can't imagine life without you. And is there some way we can make this work? Because I would like to be together with you for real. Have, has that conversation happened? I, I'm guessing it has, but if it hasn't, please lay all your cards on the table. Go ahead and get the honest answer from him. And, you know, maybe 
I don't want to give you false hope. It's just that I don't know. But if there's hope here about how you can keep this relationship okay, I think it needs to include monogamy. That's just what I think. I think you're not going to be okay if he sees somebody else and his new person isn't going to be okay with you there. I don't know, but people who love you and who are your friend like that, they're hard to find. I don't, I see what you mean. You don't want to just throw out, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Sometimes it's a sign. Sometimes it's a sign that it really is a partnership when you can't imagine life without them. And some of us, you know, I've answered letters recently from people who were in relationships that there was the young lady who was with a guy who didn't do housework. And so many people are like, oh, that's terrible, you know, dump him. And I'm like, you know, from where I sit, when you have severe PTSD, and in that letter, you know, she had been in an orphanage till eight months and it had affected her ability to attach. And so it was difficult to attach and show love. To me, when love shows up, when love shows up and people really love and care for each other, it's a wonderful thing. And sometimes it's worth being somewhat flexible to preserve it. So if you can do that, Jane, if you can find a way to take care of yourself and find a way to make this tenuous, push-me-pull-you relationship kind of hold on and be okay, the trick with avoidance is you can't come rushing at them with a lot of emotion. They're, they're, you, sometimes they can process information more slowly and you put a little distance with them. And so it's possible that with some healing your CPTSD, you could be able to be a little bit more self-contained. We use the daily practice around here. That's how I stay self-contained because I'm, I'm married to somebody who's a lot more avoidant than I am. And that's how, that's how we do it. He has to work overtime to try to make sure he doesn't like walk out the door when I'm emoting. I have to make sure I don't emote like crazy. I have to kind of limit it for him. I can communicate, but that's how it works for us. You meet in the middle. You said though, you told me that you were real, you were waking up to the fact like he means it, friends forever. So you know what I'd like you to do, Jane? Get back to us in six months at the end of the summer. Let us know what happens. I want to know what happens with you. I feel like there's too much going on to say, oh, run, get out of there. There's too much going on here. And, and I fear that I'm giving you false hope in the whole thing. But you asked. So as your faraway friend on the internet, that's what I want to say. It's like, mm, I feel like I feel like this could be a very special thing. And especially because I know your kid is going through a hard time. I want you to be safe. I want you to be supported. And you know they have a lot of online 12-step meetings now so that you can have a place to heal that's free. You can have, because uh, if you're going to go live in the country here, you're going to need online meetings, right? But it's free. You'll have friends there. You could maybe have a sponsor and somebody to call when your emotions are strong so that what you end up communicating is a little bit filtered down. If it doesn't work out with him, then the 12-step program is still your support and your foundation so that you always have a community everywhere you go and people to help and advise you with all those things you were hoping to have from him. Loneliness can grind you down so hard that when you finally meet someone, you can be primed to completely shut your eyes to the red flags that are wrapping themselves around your face. And if you weren't loved properly as a child, you may have a superpower for this kind of denial. Because when it's happening, it feels like your whole life depends on keeping the feeling of being loved on tap, even when it's not love. And even when the person you're hooked on shows every sign of bringing grief and trouble into your life. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Tracy, and she writes, Hello, Anna. I've watched all your videos and they really help me stay calm during my new boyfriend's dysregulation. 
We're only one month in, and at the start, he was all for me, an extremely positive, happy, passionate, and engaged. Then he read a letter from his impending court case from three years of childhood sexual abuse, and he has gone very, very quiet, saying he needs to get the demon off his shoulder and get back to a version of himself he's happy for me to see. All right, I'm circling this, some things I see here. I'm going to read it all the way through so we can hear what you're saying, Tracy, and then I'm going to go back through and respond to some of the things I circled and see if I can help. Okay, so it's been a fortnight and I'm starting to wonder what should I do? Do you have any advice? Currently, I'm answering his breadcrumbs of hello, babe, every few days without a delay to make sure he knows I haven't abandoned him. He has said four days ago, you're not going anywhere, are you? As much as I'd understand if you did, XXX. And I responded by saying, I was in it for the long haul and take all the time you need. Yesterday I messaged him saying I was thinking of him and I was hoping he had a good day, but it was left on red. He tried to kill himself four times once, just a month before he met me. He also has five kids who, ha who he has every second week, who he loves dearly. Is that what you suggest I give him, more time? It's such early days, and we obviously don't have the background of discussions about this at all. It, it just hits so fast. I'm a little desperate and lost not knowing what to do, but until I hear from you, I'll give him time, patience, kindness, and understanding. Thank you so much. This is all very new to me. All right. Thank you, Tracy. I think I can help you. All right. This sounds like a very dangerous and terrible situation for you. And this is going to be a tough love letter. But Tracy, I think you're gravely in denial about what's going on here and what is needed here. I'll tell you why. All right. You're one month into dating someone. That's like nothing, really. That's getting to know them a couple times. Um, it sounds like you have a sexual relationship or you wouldn't have be taking it so seriously. But one month in is, you know, you really can't make any decision about whether it's a fit or this is a person for you or anything, even if they were wonderful and totally ready for a relationship. So he was all great and he was happy and passionate and engaged. And then he read a letter from his impending court case for three years of childhood sexual abuse. So I assume it's a prosecution of the abuser. Uh, you know, uh, abusers need to be prosecuted, but I think it can do a terrible, terrible number on the people who are, um, who were abused and who have to show up for court and testify about that and open the whole thing and prove the legitimacy of what they're saying. and. Um, you know, there's really not an easy way to do that. So he's gone very quiet and saying he needs to get the demon off his shoulder. So he's saying he has a demon on his shoulder right now and he, so that he can get back a version of himself that he's happy for you to see. So he's in some terrible state that he doesn't want you to see. Um, and he's also abandoned the relationship. Just saying, okay, Tracy, he's not with you anymore and you don't know when, and he's not really talking. Okay. So it's been two weeks and I've started to wonder, what should I do? He's saying breadcrumbs of hello, babe. You respond without a delay to let him know that you haven't abandoned him. So you know what? When you've been dating for a month, you can't really abandon somebody. It's not like that. Abandonment, I mean, really abandonment refers to something that happens to a kid. And I'm just going to intuit from your letter here that you have some serious abandonment stuff. 
And, you know, if he got abused and it's only come to light now, then somebody abandoned him, didn't stand up for him when he was young. So these are people with abandonment issues. And I get that you want to reassure him, but you can't be there for somebody who isn't in your life. All right. This is, if this were a longstanding relationship, if you guys had a committed relationship, if you lived together, were married, had children, but here's what you tell me. He says, oh my goodness, you haven't gone anywhere. I'd understand if you did. And you say you're in it for the long haul. So Tracy, why are you in it for the long haul? Can you wait like at least till you've been seeing somebody a year before you say you're in it for the long haul. That's called a life commitment. So you're not in a place where you can do that. You're this, these are the rash proclamations of somebody with a great big attachment wound who has totally attached to somebody and who is maybe attaching even harder because he's abandoned you. And again, I get it. Like he can't be there for you right now. But then you said he tried to kill himself four times once just a month before he met you. So if you were together four weeks and now it's been two weeks and a month before he met you, so that's what, 10 weeks ago? 10 weeks ago, he tried to kill himself four times. Okay, this is the tough love. Somebody who's in that fragile estate and who has tried four times, this is, he's in big danger, honey. He's big, big danger. Danger for you to be around, danger for him to have a relationship that presents itself as like, oh, I'm totally here for you. You can't possibly be there for somebody you don't know. And it's not fair to promise that to somebody. Take it from me. I'm somebody who has made a similar decision and I regret it so much. It's so bad for a person who's suicidal to have a whirlwind relationship. It's so bad and so unstable. And, you know, it can't possibly work out in a way that fixes them. It can't. He may heal one day, but he's going to do that. It's going to be this huge inside job. And he may, I don't know what his relationship to this court case is. I don't know if he initiated it or got dragged into it. But I do know that even though justice may be done towards the perpetrator, it's not going to fix the hurts that happened to him. He's got a world of trouble here. All right. And, and then as if getting together with a guy who just tried to kill himself four times, this is a, like a savior mission for you. He has five kids who come see him regularly. So this is somebody who needs to preserve life so much for those kids. And um, getting into a whirlwind relationship with somebody with attachment wounds is the last way that he can keep his life stable. It's not stable. It's going to be a big rush of, you know, woo in love and then, you know, can't work out. And I will say this is, you know, his, his attachment style here of going way in and then way out. That's a disorganized attachment style that is common for people who were abused like he was. So it's not his fault that he's like that, but it's not a workable relationship for you. And a person can heal from that stuff, but he is not at that time right now where he's like any day now going to come out like, all right, I've got it now. I can really give a proper commitment to you. That's not what's happening. So basically, I'm just trying to say, you're not going to get what you want here. And more importantly, you could possibly hurt and destabilize this person who's on the very edge of survival. And I want you not to do that. And so what I would suggest to you since you ask is that you very gently just step back, just let him drift away from you. He's, he's not calling you. He's leaving you your texts unread and 
that's perfect. You can just let it go. Just let it go. And one day he might get in touch and you can very lightly and gently just say, ah, you know, I don't think I can right now. The more time that passes that he's not trying to be in a relationship with you, the more, the easier it's going to be for you to just kind of hold a boundary away from him with kindness, with praise for him. Just like, yeah, I don't think I can get into a relationship right now with what's going on. I, I really wish you healing. I hope it goes really well. So, you know, that's as kind as you can be. What's not kind is putting emotional demands on somebody to like be there for you. And you're not, you're sitting there, you're saying, oh, I'll just sacrifice everything I need and just wait for the guy and text him promptly. But I don't want you to do that, Tracy, because I'm interested in you and I want you to be interested in you. He's working out his stuff. He's not, he's not relationship material at this time in his life. But if you would like to have a relationship, the shortest route to it is to heal your trauma wounds, the ones that have you deciding to get into a relationship when you hear the the terrible, you know, I, I can't think of any kind of trouble that would be worse in a potential partner than that they were suicidal. That's not, it's not a person to get together with. That's a fantasy that you can rescue. And just trust me, you can't. This is something he's going to work out. He's hopefully because of this court case going to have access to professional help and, and deal with it that way without this complication of a fantasy whirlwind romance. Okay. So I suspect that's not what you hope to hear, but you asked Tracy. And I think a lot of people have had this experience of kind of rushing into a situation. You know, a lot of times people who are suicidal, they don't tell you that at first. And, um, you know, I ended up in such a relationship and it, it ended quite badly and it was devastating to my life. It took, took me about two years before I was emotionally on my feet again after that. And I don't wish that on anyone. When you do get into a relationship, there are specific qualities you should be looking for and you need to prepare yourself for that relationship. And to prepare yourself for that relationship, you have to be very clear, like what is a good partner and how will I know? What is the process by which I'll be able to discern if they're that person for me? Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.